0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 68 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. The key word in the phrase, a journey of self discovery, is self. You are the one travel companion that you don't get a choice in. You'll drive, navigate, cruise in silence, and be the annoying one that won't shut up and wish you could just ditch at the next gas station. You'll make some questionable food choices, stay in a few bad motels, make some boring tourist trap stops get caught for speeding, and be that car that cuts someone off with the last second lane change to make the exit you almost daydream past. And hopefully the times you fall asleep at the wheel are brief and few. If you're lucky enough for it to be a long trip, you won't make it through without rerouting or without occasionally attempting to make poetic driving metaphors that don't come off as cliche and trite. The main arc of the majority of the episodes on multiple calls focus on the journey of how people came to be who and where they are, because understanding how someone came to think the way they think is so much more meaningful than just their thoughts. Here's one of my favorite humans. I'm sure you will love what she thinks and why. Throw the windows down and turn the radio up for Jenny Howes. So start by telling me where you grew up and a bit about your family.
1: I grew up in Newmarket primarily. That's where I went to school. My earliest childhood memories of school was in Bradford. I Spent elementary school there, but then I kind of got kicked out of high school in grade nine. (laughs) I left that out of the questions that you asked me. I didn't like to go to school. So in grade nine, I skipped a lot of school, not to do anything like terrible or scandalous. I just really didn't like to go to school. So then I had to go to a different school in Newmarket at that time. And so my parents, they split when I was 10 And my brother, I have an older brother. He's three years older than me. He stayed with my dad and I went and lived with my mom. My brother and I definitely grew up like very separate people. And I had a good relationship with my dad and, or as good as can be expected, like during my teenage years. And, but I actually moved out and away from home at 17. And Because I thought I could like take care of myself. (laughs) I thought, like, I don't need parents and I don't need rules and I can totally do this by myself. So that was my first like significant culture shock as a young person. And that's when I truly started to appreciate my parents (laughs) and value the homestead. But I didn't go back. I stayed away from home and I rented a basement apartment and put myself through college and
0: where were you working? What job did you pick up?
1: In high school I had just retail jobs, at the mall and and I was able to support myself, which is crazy when I think about that now. But I, I was. I was able to support myself and and pretty much like as soon as I graduated from high school, I went into ambulance school. Like I didn't take any time off. I had a really strong work ethic, I think, from an early age. Because I was living on my own, I thought like, I need to make money. I don't have time to find myself in between high school and college. So in my, I guess, grade 12th year, I applied to the ambulance emergency care program at Humber, didn't get in and thought okay, so now what do I do? So I went for like, I think, I think the kids call it fifth year now of high school. I like to call it the victory lap. (laughs) So I went in and did another semester and I did a co-op and I got into a co-op at, I guess at that time it was Peel York and District Ambulance Service. So I did like, four months. Again, I was like 17, which is crazy to think that they let a 17-year-old child in the back of the ambulance. But they did that back then. Like I kind of used that on my next application to, to Humber as my volunteer or my experience with EMS. And then I got in. So, and then I, I was commuting from Newmarket to Humber and Etobicoke there every day. And at that time, that program was only a year long, which still blows my mind that they just kept us in school for a year and then said, way you go, go and save some lives.
0: So what drew you to that program? What was your first exposure to emergency services and
1: as early an age as that I can even remember, I wanted to be a police officer. Like, that's where I geared all of my life to that goal. And I actually am grateful to have had that goal now because I think my path could have gone in a lot of different directions, I think, when I was young. But I was so focused and driven on that career that I like behaved myself during some years that I, a lot of people I knew didn't behave themselves. My first co-op experience was, I was 16, and I did it at the Aurora OPP station. Same thing, they let a 16-year-old child in the cruiser at that time. <laughs> like, that's what the co-op experience was like, which is insane, I think, now, And again, retrospectively, looking back at that time in my life, I think I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I really shouldn't have done that. But I mean, I learned a lot. I certainly got a very literally front seat view of what emergency services looked like at that time. So that was kind of my first exposure, but it didn't scare me enough at 16. Cause you know, at 16, you're like, I can totally do this. Like I can absolutely do this. Just bring it, give me all of it. So that was my first exposure, did not steer me away from policing. But when I was done high school, I wasn't old enough to be a police officer. And some of the departments at that time were kind of, seemed to be steering away from the cadet program that they had. So I thought I'll go to school And I'll do something else for a bit, because the police loved that at that time, if you brought in different experience. So I thought, I'll just go and do something else. And the ambulance field was still in the emergency services. I thought, that's perfect. I'll just do that. It's a one-year program. All I was thinking about was time. I just need to get to my 21st birthday, and then I can apply to the police. So I went into ambulance school at 19. I finished when I was 20. I was fortunate enough to get a part-time job, like pretty much right away. And again, the whole time in my brain, I'm thinking, just need to get to 21. And maybe I'll spend five years here, so I'll be that much more mature when I go to the police department. And then I never left. I never left.
0: It's interesting you mentioned about co oping and being too young. And you look back now, you like, that was bananas. I remember during my early years in the department, we had a co-op program as well, and We had a co-op student with us one day and we went to a very bad car accident. And this is at the time where they were able to get out of the truck. And so they stood at the front of the truck while we worked and they saw a lot of stuff that they shouldn't have seen and had to be taken out of the program actually and put in another division because it was so traumatic to them. So looking back, it's, it's a good idea, but it also is a bad idea. And it gradually got watered down where they weren't allowed to leave the truck. And then it's like, well, why are they even coming like they can just be around the station and do what so it's a nice idea to give people some exposure but exposure to what you don't really have control over what they're getting exposed to
1: exactly and and that at the time I just thought I actually felt like no I need to see this to know that I can handle this whatever handle is as I use air quotes I don't even know what that means as a 17 year old kid or a 16 year old kid because now I have kids that age, and I cannot imagine them doing that and being exposed to that and then having to try to process that. I mean, I'm a grown-ass woman now, and I don't have it all together to know how to process the stuff now. So what on earth did I think I was going to be able to process back then? I think it was necessary for me. and And I always say I was a mature teenager, like I was, but the fact of the matter was still that my brain was not capable of seeing those things that I saw, and then taking that and knowing what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with it. And I do remember being a high school student and having a SId's death, I guess, and I was just getting to the station in the morning and the crew was going out right away. And so they're like, come on, you're here for the day. Like, let's go. We already got a call. So I'm like, okay. And now that's like normal for a first responder. You just know you're not going to be able to come in and take three sips of your coffee. You're probably going to be out the door. But as a kid, I was like, oh, okay, I guess this is what we do. And so I just jumped in the truck and away we went and I'm in the back. I don't know what we're going for. I even think of all these things now and think of like how much processing is done while we're driving to a call. But as a kid, I'm in the back. I don't hear anything. I don't know what I'm going to. I'm just like here to do my co-op placement. And (laughs) I hear the lights and sirens. So I know we're going to something. We pull up on this house. And I'm doing the only thing I know is to just get the bags because that was pretty much my only job in that role. (laughs) And so I get the bags and I go to go out the back door and there is already like one of my crew members coming in the back with a baby in his arms that's like unresponsive. So that's when I'm like, everything went like tunnel vision. What the fuck? Like, where am I right now? Are we not getting out? Why? What is happening? There's been no preparation no for- no ease into it. no nothing. And so now this baby is on the stretcher and my my partner's doing the airway and he's like, hey, I need you to do compressions. I'm managing the airway. This baby's like nine months old. If I could step outside of myself and, and look at myself, my eyes would be the size of golf balls, deer in the headlights. What am I even doing here? And again, there's no processing that takes place at that time. It's just like, this is what I'm in this moment. I can't be anywhere else. I'm in this moment. But I still remember my partner saying, I have a nine-month-old at home, and this is really hard for me, while he's managing the airway. And I remember, like, again, I'm just a kid. I can't even imagine what he's going through because already my my brain is, like, going insane right now in this moment because I've never seen anything like this before. Going to the hospital and... Of course, like, unfortunately, there was nothing that could be done at this point. And hearing the mother come in and all of those sounds, I still have those, like still have those. And I am almost, I'm a month shy of my 49th birthday and I can still see and hear and feel everything as if it was yesterday. And that's how I look at those years and think, I probably shouldn't have been there then.
0: (laughs) But do you think that sort of slap in the face moment is partially due to our society and how we treat death and we've always kept it separate from daily life like we're most people in our culture are very bubble wrapped and in a bubble protected where a lot of other cultures death is a normal part of life Mm -hmm. and i've been thinking recently that you know we'll get into this later on as well, but that same saying of like, well, you're having a normal reaction to an abnormal event. But I had a realization in mind that everything that we do see is normal. It happens everywhere, every day, all the time. It's normal. It's just the rest of our culture. It's not normal because they've been sanitized and protected from it. So maybe because we were brought up, maybe a lot of kids in other cultures have seen a lot of death before they're 17 and it wouldn't be that big of a shock. Not that it's not a hard thing to process because it's very hard to process. It doesn't mean we, should, we shouldn't be affected by it or impacted by it. it just, I'm just saying the fact that it is, maybe the fact that we call these things abnormal is what makes it even harder for us to deal with.
1: Absolutely. I agree. I think that's a great way of putting it because that is what we're told. But you're absolutely right. These aren't abnormal events. They're just not events that the average person sees. That's the only thing that's unique about it. Right. But miscarriages you're right. are normal. <clears throat> SIDS
0: deaths are normal. Yeah. They're tragic. They're horrible. Yeah. They're brutal to have to wrap your head around, but it's reality.
1: Yeah. And admittedly, I think, like, I mean, I know as a parent myself, and I think even my own parents, like, Our parents don't want us to be exposed to that. I don't want my kids to have to experience death that way. I absolutely want to be able to, I was going to say control, but I mean manage how they're going to be exposed to these things when they're young. Making the choice to go into this field, while my parents were like supportive of my decisions to do this, I think my parents looked at it as like a really honorable thing. They didn't look at it for like, oh, wait a minute, she's going to be seeing some things that the rest of us can't even fathom seeing. And even to try to create that in our imagination is almost impossible. My parents didn't see it that way. When I realized that was after I'd probably been on the job for about five years, being at my parents' house. My parents are like avid six o'clock news watchers. And the first time my parents saw me on TV was when they put it together where they were like, oh, that's you. And it's, you know, some horrific car accident. It was only ever my ass that they saw on the news. It was never my face. It was like, oh, I recognize that butt going into the back of the ambulance. That's when my parents went, oh, I really believe my parents just thought I'd drive. Like, beep, beep. My daughter drives an ambulance. And it wasn't until that moment that they went, holy shit. Like you're in it, like you are in it. And again, I'm in my 20s at that time. So while my parents are still kind of wanting to, I'm sure like just shield me from the world, it was that moment they realized like, yeah, it's it's in her hands now. Like this is not for us to try to manage anymore.
0: Yeah, so to build on this thought about the things we see and how we expose ourselves or our children to death, and at what point, and then we could ask ourselves, Well, in what way is the right way to expose people to death? And this will tie in nicely because you worked as a funeral director. So maybe talk to me about how that experience framed how you saw death. Do you see it differently now? Do you feel like the way that we treat funerals and deaths is helpful now that you're sort of overlaying it with that other experience as a co-op kid having been sheltered due to our culture?
1: I actually take, or, or I look at death, I guess, is probably one of the most special moments that you can share with another human being. And not a lot of people understand when I say that, but I actually consider that part of my job to be the most honorable Agreed. and pride filled. And it gets me emotional a because. Privilege. Yeah hundred percent. Do you see
0: it as that saying about walking people home?
1: Yep, I do. And I I mean, I know I struggled with it before I was able to look at it that way and really see it that way. And interestingly enough, I didn't realize that until I shared a moment with my very best friend, Bonnie, you know, Bonnie, who's a a nurse practitioner now, but she lost her dad about five years ago. No, it's more than that now because I was still working.
0: You got to add the COVID years in there, which is- Yeah,
1: it's like a blur. God, maybe it's more like seven years. Maybe it's eight. I don't know. It's a while, but she called me. She said, my dad's in the hospital. It's not looking good. And I said, okay, I'll just come. I'll just come. And so I had just got home from work and I turned around and I drove back to Credit Valley and it was just Bonnie and her dad. and, And I mean, I was close to her dad. I knew her dad and her eldest daughter was there and we just sat with him. And in our line of work, you don't get to do that. (laughs) You're dragged in and you're like, okay, do what you do. And there is no like quiet moments in that. I sat in that moment with her. We didn't really speak. And it was obviously like he was very close to death. And her daughter was really struggling with it naturally. This is her grandfather. And I remember the moment that he died. And I remember thinking... This is the most special moment I have ever had in my life. And to share it with like my dear friend, I have realized how much I had taken for granted in those moments with people. And while I always really respected those moments and including family members was always super important to me as well, like as a medic. I mean, obviously, as long as they were comfortable, but I really believed that that's where grieving starts. It starts in those moments of like, Being around your loved one and even when the work is being done and knowing that like there's genuinely good people there that are doing what they can and supporting your loved one and supporting you at the same time. Because I don't know how many times you've seen that where it's like the family members don't exist. And that was – I hated that. I was like, no, like we are all here together. Like if you need to ask me questions, I will answer your questions. I'm able to do that for you because – that's what you deserve in this moment. You deserve to know what's happening here and what we're doing here. And just keeping them up to speed with everything that was taking place there right to the moment of like, we've exhausted all our options here and your father, mother, sister, brother is not responding anymore to what we're doing. And I have to make a phone call now to a physician. And I'm just letting you know that this is where we're at. Do you have any questions? Do you want to talk about any of this? That was always like, really, really valuable. My partners were like, yeah, you fill your boots. I don't want to do that. You go right ahead. But like I said, I took pride in those moments. Those are really valuable moments for me. I think that if you were to ask those families now what that experience was like, I would hope that they that they have a piece of that in that moment, that it's not chaos, that it's not disorganized, that it's not like...
0: Cold and disconnected.
1: And just furiously and all of those all that energy that's in that room at that time I don't I never wanted my families to feel like feel that same chaos and to feel that intensity and to feel that urgency I wanted to give them the quiet moments that I felt were like so truly valuable at those moments which is hard to do when you're having to do both but I definitely think as a funeral director, I realized how important those moments were for people. And certainly, after I'd shared this experience with Bonnie and her dad in that moment, I thought, no, like people need that people. And, like you say, our North American culture, like, really looks at death as like a scary bad thing.
0: A sanitized arm's length.
1: Yeah. Even like just to touch your loved one that's now deceased. He's the same as he was. Right. Why is <laughs> that different? Yeah. Like, and so it was always really important for me to to just like I, I would never cover up a person's face after they died. Like, no, 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 that's not that. Imagine what that would look like to a family member walking in that now their loved one is just covered in a sheet. Like, why are we hiding this? This is not something to be hidden. This is their person. And so I took those things really seriously whenever I had like field pronouncements and or even like code five, like you don't cover up the person and now just like, close the bedroom door and say to the family, you don't want to go in there. Like, no. And again, early in my career, I don't even think I was a funeral director at that time. I had done a a terrible car accident where was a young teenage boy was killed. And the passenger also died later, but he was dead on scene. And I had brought in the passenger actually, no, sorry, I brought in the driver of the other vehicle. And over the day, they we're back and forth to the hospital, of course, a million times over. And I saw the officer that was on scene, and he said, oh, I've got the family coming in. And and the nurses in eMERGE, which I didn't know this was a thing, but at the time, the nurses in eMERGE were asked to go down to the morgue and, like, make the person presentable for when the, the parent came in and, and ID'd or the family member came in and ID'd they were horrified they thought like I don't want to do this and I didn't even know that that was a part of what they needed to do but of course like the the morgue attendants aren't going to do that so i mean i'd already been at that accident so i said well i'll go and do it like i'm here i don't mind like i'll go and do it i had no i didn't have children at the time i wasn't married i was a kid 20 <laughs> something so i went down to the morgue and i just cleaned up this boy's face and Brushed the glass out of his hair and again took the sheet off from over his face and just tried to clean up things because this memory is going to be imprinted on that dad's face forever and ever and ever. Again, I took pride in those moments because I felt like that's like you have to, I don't even know how to describe it. I just felt like it was necessary and valuable. And I don't forget those moments. And oddly enough, like, with all of the, the things that I've experienced and all of the things that led me to my PTSD diagnosis, my work at the funeral home, like five, six years that I worked with the funeral home, that did not contribute. I don't have any memories that I've needed to reprocess from that. My psychologist has said like, oddly enough, your PTSD did not come from your work as a funeral director. I guess, which is a positive thing. That's a really tough job too. And there's a lot of really difficult things to process there. I really loved that work. I really felt it was valuable work and honorable work. And it also like, I think it, like you said too, we don't know how to deal with grief. Like we struggle, I think, because nobody can really, you can't really identify all the things that go into grief, like emotionally, emotionally. So it's really hard for people, I think, to understand and know what to say, or how do I act, or what do I do around people who are grieving, and especially grieving a loss of a loved one. But interestingly enough, like that's one of the spaces I feel the most comfortable. <laughs> like
0: It's interesting, I want to highlight that you use the phrase, my families, right? So you go in and run these calls, and you see them as your families, that you're there to help. So talk to me about the idea of helping people. I want to help people. So everyone that gets into the service, hopefully, has this idea that I want to help people. I've said this before. I think it's common where people want to help kind of on the fringes, but they don't want to help. Maybe they're thinking about their definition of what's helping, which is the doing of certain tasks, whereas they're not necessarily thinking about helping as what the family needs from them. But you've obviously seen helping as a much, much broader approach, which is similar to how I see it. There's the helping on the technical task side that needs to be done to help the person. But then there's also this helping emotionally, compassionately. And then that translates over into helping in moments where there's no technical tasks to be done because the person has passed. So I'm going to layer on this a little bit, but we can riff on it. It's common in the emergency services culture to... I think, teach people to put barriers up, to buffer, to distance so they're able to do their job. And I think also that's given to people as an approach with all good intentions to try and protect them so they're not affected as much. We could say that what I've struggled with, what you've struggled with, is because we did care and connect, but also people that were disconnected struggle as well. I know that's a lot, but let's maybe try and unpack that of like, what true helping is, why connecting emotionally compassionately with empathy is so important and has that helped you even though you have had difficulties has that connection helped you heal along the way
1: i definitely think it has maybe i've always been that person like i can't really look back to even when i was like the 16 and 17 year old kid in the back of the police car in the back of the ambulance i just remember always caring from a deeper place. And and I used to joke that that's why I thought I would make a terrible police officer, because I cared so much for the people. And I thought I, I'm never going to be able to separate myself enough to like, way out, is this a bad guy? Is this a good guy? Like, because I want everyone to be good. (laughs) And so that's pretty much the deciding factor why I chose to stay in EMS, because I realized like, I can't be that person. I can't be that person like a- any time, you know, kids steal something or a kid fights with another kid and we're both there, the police are there and the paramedics, I'm responding there and I just want to hug the kids. I'm like, I know you just had a bad day. And and obviously the police officer's role is very different. He has to ultimately decide like who is he bringing in and if there's charges going to be laid. I was not able to do that. I recognized, like, probably before my five years were up in EMS that, like, I'm never going to make a good police officer because my ability to put up those barriers and, like, look at the big picture, there was no way I was going to be able to do that. And that's probably what then directed me into wanting to be a funeral director because I knew I genuinely cared for people and genuinely wanted to comfort people and sit with people in their discomfort that oddly enough you know me and my comfort I love to be comfortable but I really craved that connection that was so valuable to me and like I said that's all I I know of myself and that's all I know of what I wanted to give to my career and yeah maybe like did I Give so much of it that I became the sponge to all of the other stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But I I really just always looked at my work as a paramedic and my work as a funeral director. Like, I can do this. Not a lot of people can. We know that. So I'm just going to. And I know that I can do this with genuine empathy and genuine compassion and genuine kindness. So, like, this is where I belong, where else am I gonna be able to give that of myself? Like, So for me, I think that's where the caring is. To me, it just felt like giving over, like here is everything I have, let me be that person. And let me be the one to sit with you on your worst day. Let me take that. And I think years later now that I've not been on the job, it's I'm coming up to seven years, I guess, of not being on the job. I still crave that nurturing, that desire to just care for people. I miss it. Like, I truly, truly miss it.
0: Did you see it as a distillation down to what really matters in life? Like, there's a lot of noise in life, a lot of things that are going on that maybe can be seen as not mattering. But in those moments, it's very, very clear what matters.
1: A hundred percent. And I think it does. It sounds kind of cliche to say, like, oh, like, you don't know strife. Like, come and do a day in my job and you'll know, like, then you'll have something to complain or not have, realize you have nothing to complain about, whatever that expression is. And that's why I say it was either take those moments and say, holy shit, life is fucking horrible. Look at what these people have to deal with every day. Or for me, there was looking at those moments and saying, I'm just glad I was there. I'm glad I was there. And I'm glad and grateful that I could at least leave a piece of myself and hopefully carry a bit of those people's burdens just in those moments, yeah, that was like just really valuable to me.
0: Do you think integrating the technical competence with this human aspects of who we are, do you think that makes for a better first responder? Is that the goal?
1: I think it should be. But I think there's really, how do you evaluate someone's level of of compassion? How do you evaluate their genuine kindness?
0: We've seen some bad bedside manners. <laughs>
1: well, and like, let's face it, I wasn't always, I'm sure there were days I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You know, <laughs> like there were some days where that toothache, I called the ambulance, I may have not have shone with empathy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't think any part of this conversation is <laughs> us trying to paint ourselves as these no. angelic
1: Oh God, no, like I, I did it bad sometimes too.
0: I guess what we're speaking to is the overarching, that was your driver to be in the service. It was why you were there. It was what you came back to. And, and then the rest is us just being messy humans. We'll go further on this, uh, but let's just step back. So chronologically, you got recruited into ambulance and then what were your rookie years like? So what was integrating into that culture like for you?
1: The first station I was posted out of was in a fire hall. And there were no women that worked in the fire department at the time. And there was only a handful of women that worked in EMS at that time. So few that we didn't have women's uniforms even. We were issued men's uniforms. There was no women's bathroom at the fire hall. There was no women's change room at the fire hall. There was a very different culture than than what exists now. Absolutely. I'm grateful for those years because I think like, to me, that's, it was a bit of a rite of passage. Like, I know I struggled. I know I kept my mouth shut a lot, which I'm sure surprises a lot of people who are going to hear this. (laughs) But I absolutely realized day one, I am a visitor here. (laughs) Like, these are not my people yet. These people are trying to decide if I'm going to be their people. I don't just get To be their people here. So I do remember like just showing up and always doing the vehicle check by myself. The roles as rookie and like seasoned medic, or at that time we were ambulance attendants, those were very different roles. And I don't even know if these sort of things even still exist now. I don't know. But I mean, I would show up, we didn't really carry a lot of equipment, but my stethoscope would go on the passenger seat every day, for probably, I don't even know, a year or more, where like, that's where I'm going to sit, I'm going to start every day there. And my partner is going to be the one to tell me if I get to drive, like, uh, my role was just attendant all day, every day, until someone handed me a, a set of keys. Again, I don't know if that exists now. I feel like there would be a lot of resistance from people now, just knowing the culture and the demographic of of what rookies look like now. But to me, that was like, oh no, I know my place.
0: I guess to frame for people that might not understand is that usually the culture, at least that's my experience, because we work for the same service, was that you would alternate. In the passenger seat, you would be the attending, so You would be first and you'd be assessing. You would be deciding treatments. Your driver would be... Handing equipment, Driving. <laughs> getting yeah, getting vitals, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And then the attendant would be obviously be the one doing the paperwork. But usually through a day you just you keep alternating. Right. So that you don't have to attend and do the paperwork all day.
1: Right. But even back in those days, Scott, like we didn't have defibrillators. We didn't have symptom relief. We didn't have anything. I remember when that equipment came on, that's when the driver's role became like, oh oh, I have to share I have to do vitals now. But back when I first started, the driver drove.
0: Oh, and that was it.
1: Yes. So we would get there and he would stand back and he would just wait. Until I did everything.
0: So the term ambulance driver was actually pretty accurate.
1: Yes, it really was. (laughs) Not so
0: offensive. It's actually literally what the person did. Absolutely.
1: And of course, like at that time, I was kind of jumping all over the place and working in lots of different stations because I was part time. And I worked with a lot of, how should I put it, problem children. Like I, I worked with a lot of senior people that didn't have partners for good reason but i think it really it taught me a lot in those years i learned how to self advocate i learned how to be diplomatic i learned how to delegate but delegate in a way that wasn't like do this or else it was delegate politely it was that actually was probably a really positive thing for how it shaped me into then being an ACP later on when so much of my role was delegation. I wasn't someone that liked to particularly bark at people. And But I do think that those early years of just really being quiet and just doing what I was told, and I know that's like to even imagine that now is kind
0: of crazy, but eventually, you found your voice. and
1: yeah, and I think we all did at that time, because it wasn't that's not just my individual experience. That's what the culture was like then. And that's what we learned. And I don't know. I just feel like if you look at all the medics from my generation, like if they haven't gone on to management, if they're still sort of working on the road, there is a very common trend amongst those people. They're all kind of quiet professional. Darren Clark is a perfect example of that. He's my generation. That guy is one of the most respected paramedics yep. that is out there.
0: Yeah. You want I, him coming if it's your. Yes,
1: family. you do. Yeah. And so like there is this air of confidence, but I think all of these like experiences, the the sort of The adversity of being a rookie is absolutely what shaped that confidence. That's what created that confidence, that quiet confidence, that self-assured. Like you ever see Darren Clark run? No. No. Because no, you just did not do that then. You just, you walked in and you looked like you were calm and collected, even if inside. Joe was like like
0: that. Bill was like that. Shannon was like that.
1: Yeah. So I think those years were important. Even though like like I said they would not fly now. I know they wouldn't. But I'm grateful for those years. I do remember sitting around the dinner table at the fire hall on one of my first shifts and this fire captain kind of berating me about like how to change a fuse <laughs> and saying that I have no idea like, I don't know how to fix anything. I don't know. Like, just kind of like a bit of a macho sort of thing. And he was a, an, he was on his way to retirement and uh, like very close to retirement. And I, I, I do remember like the other younger firefighters kind of coming to my aid and saying like, of course, she doesn't know about fuses. She grew up on breakers. Like, give her a break. So I know that there was definitely a a significant generation gap, which I think that's just a given. Like we are a million years apart. You are on your way out of your career. I am on my way in. Of course, you're going to test me. Of course.
0: I think we can all agree that at no point should anybody be, I guess it's a gray area sometimes, but harassed. Right. Right. Or feel unsafe. Of course. No no one is saying that should be something. But there is something to... Coming into a culture and finding your place in it, and how you contribute to the dynamics of the group, and not flat out dictating how the group should set up for you. Yeah. There's a big difference.
1: There is, and and I and certainly like things like discrimination and harassment. We didn't know about those things then. We really didn't. We didn't have anti-bullying. Policy. We didn't have policies around that stuff at all. Our
0: generation is the reason the policies exist. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs>
1: totally. Yes. And at the same time, like I don't ever feel like I was disrespected. Like I don't.
0: But you might have been.
1: I probably was, right. but I never felt that way. I just felt like no, like this is this is the place that I have to begin at. This is my starting point. I'm not unique. Everyone in front of me has been in this seat, in this ambulance attendant seat for months on end too. They're not doing this to me.
0: So you never felt unsafe with the people you were around?
1: No, I didn't. I mean, there were times when I guess I was unsure, but I think that was more a me thing than it was, no one made me feel unsure. I was a 20, like 19, 20 year old kid coming into a job where I clearly had a lot of responsibility all of a sudden. Any of this sort of um, apprehension or, or just unsure or lack of confidence, that was all me. My colleagues didn't give me that. But I don't think they necessarily encouraged me to be a super confident person either. But that's like, again, I, I never felt unsafe. I knew that, and I mean, and it was proven time and time again, that when shit went down on a call, I was absolutely taken care of. I never doubted that. Like never. I obviously got quite close with my fire crew mates because of the working out of that station. And at that time we were all on the same schedule, the, the 10s and 14s and the the 14 shifts a month. So like we were super close. But even like right from day 1, I knew those guys like they had my back. Like I knew that.
0: Yeah, I look back on that time as really golden years too of the great relationships we had with everybody because that's how we ran into each other all the time before I became a medic as well part-time and you're down the road.
1: Sunday breakfast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more of that.
1: Yeah. And I think like that's when I noticed the job really changing because I know Brampton didn't go on to the 24s, so kind of late in the game. A lot of the other guys, the other departments had had gone on to the 24s. And that's when I felt like things started to change because – we didn't have that camaraderie anymore. Now we were running into lots of people we didn't know anymore. And not to say that, that we didn't have guys that were super helpful. We always had guys that were super helpful. But it, it's a different relationship well, it's almost a lack of relationship because we didn't know them anymore. Like my guys knew 100% of what I needed. I never had to ask. They just, this is, there's my stretcher. Here's all my bags. And oh, like you need a stair chair. I'll go get it. Whereas like, then you start running into crews that don't know who I am. Don't know. They're saying, well, what do you want me to do anything? Or my favorite, can we clear?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And again, I think we're talking about how- You could say, well, you can run into anybody and you don't have to know them and you can still get the task done. You can still get the work done. But there's something to knowing the people you're interacting with, to having that human connection. There's some special sauce that's there that adds to, not only to the experience of the people doing the work, but also, again, touching back to the experience or the energy in the household for the families that we go and help. Yeah. you feel it, it's different. Absolutely. Less cold and task oriented. And
1: I think that's when I started to notice the job changing. Our crew members, our partners, they do become that kind of extended family. And so now you're all just collectively in this together. And when you know you've got like really good people that you, like you say, that you are connected with, it makes those really tough times like easier. Because you know, like, after this call's done, I'm going over the fire hall. And we're all going to sit and we're going to put on some coffee. And we're just going to friggin talk. We may not talk about this that we just did. But we're just going to friggin talk. And then someone's going to say something stupid. And then we're all going to laugh really hard. And then maybe an hour or so two hours later, I might get another call. <laughs> Those were the days of like, we didn't do calls always back to back to back to back. And there was not mobile deployment. And there was like, we were literally on Bramley Road, we're going pretty much back to the same place. And so when that started to change, like, it definitely, that's when I felt like the job was changing for me. And it was kind of around that time that I started considering the ACP thing and and then eventually the TAC thing. Yeah. So
0: walk me through that then. Did you get into instructing at all at a PCP level? Were you teaching?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know.
0: So the next step for you was ACP. So then why that jump from PCP to ACP and how was that experience for you?
1: I didn't really want to be an ACP, like, because I literally, you know, again, I looked at Darren Clark as like the ACP god, I'm like, I'm never going to be as calm, cool and collected as that guy. (laughs) Like there is a whole circus of things going on in my brain at any given time, I'll probably never be calculated enough to take on that role. So I thought I'll just do the acting soup thing, like maybe I can juggle that. I didn't really want to be a supervisor either. But like there's so few options for us in EMS. There's not like other departments that you can explore. At, at that time, I mean, now we have a lot, there's a lot of option, but at that time there really wasn't anything. And so I thought, well, this posting came up for acting soup, like I was only acting. I can do that, I'll do that. I'll, so I applied and I went, I went through the interview process and, and I got a spot and I picked up all my white shirts and I was like, what the hell am I doing with these white shirts? And uh, I was going in for my very first training day And I'm driving on the 401 and I get a phone call from a friend of my dad's. And he says, I don't want to scare you. I know you're driving, but your dad's had a heart attack, but he's okay. But he's had a heart attack and he's at South Lake Hospital. And so I'm just letting you know, I just have his phone. Your mom's here and we're with your mom and everybody's good. So don't worry. And of course, like, I'm worried. This is my stepdad, by the way, and him and I are super close. So I was like okay, I'm on my way. So I just drove straight to Southlake. I was living in Cambridge at the time, I think I was living. No, I wasn't. I don't know where I was living, but I was living out in the West End at that time. So I drove to Southlake and I went into the cath lab. My dad was not really okay. I realized that's just the thing you tell daughters when they're driving. <laughs> of course, I'm in uniform and it's amazing the shit you can get when you're in uniform. So I just walked in like I own the place. I'm like, I would like to see the ACR, please. And because I knew he was brought in by ambulance. Oh, my God. You cannot do that now. (laughs) Like, thank you, privacy legislation. You can no longer do that. But I was like, I'd like to see the ACR. They're like, oh, here you go. Here's the whole chart. Like, it's crazy. So I'm like reading everything. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, my dad was paced in the back of the ambulance. And oh, my God. Thank God he had an ACP. And this was York EMS that picked him up. So, you know, I scan down, I see the name. I'm like, I don't really know that guy, but I've heard of that guy. And if there's any guy that you want to show up for your dad, it's that guy. And at that time, York was like, they were so forward thinking. I don't know if they're still like that, but but definitely back then, this is like 2006, I think. They're already like bypassing the eMERGE and going straight to the cath lab. And And this was like, oh my God, they're doing like superpower shit out here. So anyway, my dad survived, but it was a bit terrifying. And certainly had he not been paced on the side of the 404, he probably would not be here. I left the hospital late that night and like still wearing my acting supervisor uniform and thinking like this is not the uniform I'm supposed to be wearing. So I had actually like, I think I phoned His name was Sean McLeish. I don't even know if he still works as a a CCP medic with Orange. He was with Orange at that time and with York. Again, you could like get phone numbers at that time too. I don't even know. But I, I phoned him and I said, you know, like, thanks. Like, thanks for looking after my dad. And because of that, I'm doing the ACP thing like I need to, like it's necessary. And yeah, so I don't even know. I think it was like a month or two later where there was a call out for ACPs. I'm like, okay, well, it's now or never. I, my daughter at the time was like just over a year. I'm like, yeah, this is probably the stupidest thing I'm ever going to (laughs) do. I have three babies at home, but yeah, I'm sure I could handle this. And so, yeah, so I applied and, and went through the whole like selection process and the, uh, Hilarious interview with Dr. Cheskis, and <laughs> and then I went into ACP school, and and that was a ride in itself. It was very intense, and I'd been out of school a long time, like been on the road already. I remember us adding up all the experience of the class. I think I had 15 people in my class, my ACP class, and I had more years of service on the road than all 14 other people added up together so i was like senior at that time but yeah it was the best decision i ever made that's when i felt like i'm oh shit so this is what it feels like to make a bit of a difference in people's lives because when you first come on and again no defibrillator no symptom relief like all we had was oxygen and remember like i don't know if you remember but like i remember the blanket and oxygen just being like that's the gold standard here the bed auction blanket yeah Yeah. That's what bob, we do. You bob
0: people, yeah. That's
1: it. And then, of course, when defibrillators came on, we're like, "Wow, this is uh, this is pretty cool. Like, this might actually help people." And then, you know, you do your first like five VSAs with a defibrillator, and nothing changes. It's still <laughs> the same. Right. And you're like, "Okay, so glad we have this piece of equipment." I do remember like being a PCP. I was working with Dan Patterson, and we had a VSA. In a garage, the n- whole neighborhood is there and we hooked this guy up and that was like, I don't even know what the protocol is. But do you remember when we used to like shock people like, f- I don't even know, infinite amount of times. <laughs> yeah. So they were like medium rare inside. Well, holy shit. We got a pulse back on this guy. And I like came to our like after we'd shocked, I don't even know, 15 times or whatever and came to that whole pulse check and and I remember looking at Patterson and Oh my god. Yeah. I'm like, "Holy shit. We have a pulse back." And of course, all the neighbors are like, "What is happening?" And Dan's like, "Keep it together here." But I'm like, "Did you even know this could happen? This is amazing." So, Certainly when I um, when I became an ACP, like there were a lot more moments like that where I'm like, oh my God, this is like, this is the real deal. This is the real helping people part. And there's also a tremendous amount of responsibility and a lot of really sad days in that role too. But
0: And what was the culture of support around you of wanting to take on that role than being in that role?
1: I think generally like... It was positive because we were we were excited that we even had this opportunity. We'd worked for so many years with no ACPs. The only ACPs that we ever ran into were in Holt, Mississauga at the time. In the odd time, you know, you'd get a Toronto guy that would just sort of drift a little bit into the north. And I don't know if you remember, but those guys were gods at that time. When they started increasing the the... ACP numbers in our service. It was exciting for us. So I remember feeling like really supported actually and and Darren Clark became my preceptor, which was like the best thing ever. even though he was like secretly terrified me because he's just so smart and just so chill all the time. But I sought him out. I'm like, that is the only guy I want to precept me. I want to that is the guy that I need for him to teach me the ways. He was so awesome. And Dave Smiley, which I don't know. Did you know that Dave Smiley just recently passed away? No. Yeah. Ugh. Like, in so I want to say- said his name.
0: I had this great feeling of like remembering- Yeah. Spending time with him.
1: Like just recently, like uh. I want to say maybe in the last six months, Ugh. like very recently. Yeah. Sad, right? Dave was like a, a super senior guy. Like he is one of the OG of EMS, right? And- um, working with those two guys like dave was like always like abrupt and i mean i'd been on the job for 12 or 13 years or or whatever it was at that time yeah like whatever it was at that time i probably needed a bit of that abrasive like abrupt
0: all business all the time
1: yeah but like oh i just loved those two guys i loved learning in that environment it was a great pair yes And like, that's a perfect example of like that connection, like those two, they were like a a well-oiled machine when they work together. And so I genuinely felt like this is, this is the best place I could possibly learn is from these two guys. And yeah, those were some, those were really good times. We had a lot of laughs But like, but when it came down to like the business end of things, like those guys taught me everything.
0: Do you think there was a lot of laughs because they were confident in their competence? Like once you reach that state, you can relax a lot, not relax in your work, but that stress, that worry that, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to do the right thing? That kind of falls away and you're like, okay, I've, I've got this. And then you can kind of relax and your personality can come out. You can connect with people a bit better. There's a lot of positives beyond being good at technical aspects that come from being competent.
1: I often wondered if those guys were just always like that. Because honestly, like, I don't know, Darren got on the job about six months maybe before me, I think. So he wasn't like super senior to me, but he just always seemed like a guy that just was like, this is where I belong and this is what I do. And I never saw Darren ever, what's the word I'm looking for? Like I never- Agitated, irritated? No. Or like scattered or- out of sorts or dis. I never saw that. That guy was always the same. It didn't matter if it was a train derailment. That was the same as the, like, the cut finger while doing the dishes. That's just how he always was. And, and that's, I think, what I took away from my preceptorship with those two is that, because he just never got excited. I was not a preceptor. I did take college students, like back in the day. But I learned very quickly that I wasn't. I wouldn't say it was not a a good preceptor, but Darren had this way (laughs) where he could just sit back. I was clearly struggling, but Darren would just wait. That guy had the patience and just this whole collected, he was just always put together and never, he would watch me struggle and I mean not at the expense of a patient let Absolutely. me put that out there yeah. but he would watch me just let you like, have the experience Yeah, learn. I can't do that for people I'm I want to save everyone ask my husband ask my children I'm just like, no 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 are you uncomfortable let me make that better for you let me take all of the discomfort from your world and your moment let me bear the weight of that Darren was like no no you you in the shit you stay there And you work your way out of it. And that was the best lesson. Like, yeah. And again, I'm not someone that can, I'm not that person. And while I liked having college students, I wasn't patient enough to allow them to have the experience.
0: It makes me think of when I went back to school to become a medic. And I had already been on, I waited until I became first class as a firefighter and then went back to school. And then it was, again, I just want to say this. Openly, I don't want to just be inferred, but it was a really amazing experience for me to be able to drop into working, learning from people that I already knew. That we were already running calls together for all those first three, four years. We had these relationships, and then to to drop in, not just as this unknown, but to be, you know, with Bill and Shannon were my preceptors when I was a college student,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I was well aware what the rookie role was. I was happy to to because I was still a rookie. With fire, so. right, right. But it was really nice energy to land in that supportive, but still expectations were set. It was a really nice environment to be in. And it's like I was, always look, look back on it fondly, and I'm very grateful for it. The dynamic that group had.
1: Oh gosh, yeah, like that whole crew. Like who was on the other truck at that time? Was it Daryl Bailey on the other crew at that time? I believe so. Yeah. Did I work with Taylor Daryl Bailey then? I don't know, but I remember that. Like I remember, I just can't remember who else was on that. Kim. Yeah. Yeah. But it is. Like those olden days at Bramley Station, like that was a good group of people.
0: And over on Hanson Road eventually.
1: Yeah. God, it feels like a million years ago now.
0: (laughs) So now let's take the next step to TAC. So how did that come up? How did you make the jump from ACP to TAC and why?
1: There was a posting that came up. Again, like I'd been in ACP for about four years, I guess, by that time. Again, just sort of finding myself in that place like Kind of now that I I look at chronologically, it looks like about every five to six years, I had a little bit of a, I need to do something different. And the posting came up. Heather was already intact at that time. And she was like, oh, my God, you got to totally do this. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Isn't there a physical? (laughs) Like, do I have to run? Like, wait. Because, you know, that's the beauty of like when I started EMS. There was like no real physical test. You did the, I forget what it was even called. It's called the Medicist test? Does that sound right? Where you, I had to go to the city, to Toronto, and do these like static lifting tests where you don't actually lift anything. They're just measuring, like you just pull on a bar that's literally chained to right, the ground yeah. and they measure, I don't know, it's a series of measurements. But there were no like, there were no lifting tests. There was no physical tests. I, I mean, was, that's
0: a lot of the job
1: us, all of the job. Like even you think of how heavy those bags became, that job was highly physical. And yeah, oh, can you hook up an oxygen tank? You're hired. When TAC came up, I was like, like, maybe just give me a rundown about what that selection process looks like. And then I'll tell you, I'll weigh out my options and decide, do I want to run in order to do that? Is it worth it? So they did have a totally rad uniform. So I was like, hmm. I wouldn't mind wearing that uniform. It's like way cooler than the one I'm wearing now. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the summertime, I'll say that. It was, oh my God, it was like wearing a glad bag in the summertime. But I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. Like, just what do I need to do? Heather's like, well, you're going to need to like jump over a six foot wall. And I was like, I'm 5'5". Like, do we, can you not see that this is probably highly unlikely? Just physics alone, I'm, that's not, I'm not meant to do that. So she's like, no, 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 we're going to go practice. We're going to go over to to Derry Road, and the wall is always out there. Let's just go and and practice it. So I'm like, okay. And I don't know, you can think and visualize a six-foot wall, but when you stand in front of one, it's a lot taller than six feet. It really is. So I hit that wall, and I say I hit it because I physically hit it dozens of times and I'm like I'm not going up I'm just going into it I'm just going into it as if I'm going to run through it I, I could not seem to
0: it's, it's a real metaphor for getting into the job <laughs> <It>
1: Totally, is.
0: <laughs> this is a, a literal <laughs> wall a barrier that I oh can't my get God, over
1: it's true and you can't see around it you can't <sighs> see over it it is just like here it is So I hit that wall dozens of times. I'm like, Heather, I just don't know if this is in the cards for me, really. She's like, no, you just have to like show them that you're not going to give up. I'm like, well, here we are. How many more times do I have to do this to tell you that I am not going to get over this thing? So she's like, it doesn't matter. You just have to show them that you are like, you're driven and you're willing and um, you're going to do whatever it takes to get there but am I? (laughs) Like, am I? So anyway, I thought, well, what the hell? I'll just apply. And the first part of that selection process, like obviously submitted my resume, and it was selected. And and then I had to go into this physical. So I was preparing for the physical. I had to do the the police pin test. So the the mile and a half run and sit-ups, push-ups, there was a flexibility I think that was all it was at that time. But it was either the mile and a half or the shuttle run. Both of those things still give me nightmares. (laughs) Like, so, oh, and then and if you're successful with the pin test, then you go on to the the tactical obstacle course, which is a series of stations, the first one being the six-foot wall. I can't tell you what the other stations were because I never made it past the six-foot wall. But so I, I went and I did the pin test. I was very organized in how I was going to tackle this fitness test because I just needed seventy percent, 75% overall. Sees uh, get
0: degrees. Yeah,
1: <laughs> totally. Oh my God, I need to put that in my office now. I went there just thinking, I just need to get 100% on the sit-ups, push-ups, and flexibility so that I can shit the bed on the run and still get through. <laughs> so that's exactly what I did. I still ran the run, but I, I came out with 75%. So I went on to the obstacle course, which was the same day. There's was not a break, but anyway. So I went on to the obstacle course and there is not a lot of other daunting experiences I've had in my life. Uh, that day was right up there. Every tactical police officer, which are literally superheroes. They're all in the garage. They're literally standing like the way you're sitting right now, only you're not intimidating. They're like, arms are crossed, their massive biceps are bulging out of their shirts, all in the garage, just standing around while I have to hit the six foot wall over and over and over again. So the way the obstacle course was set up is like we had 12 minutes to finish it. And there was like, you had to run up all these sets of stairs with a gas mask on. That's super comfortable. And, but I don't have to tell you because that's literally what your job is. And then run down to the bottom and grab a dummy and drag him up to flights of stairs or whatever, and then drop the gas mask and come into the garage. And there's the six foot wall. So, I think I was about a minute, maybe maybe two two and a half minutes to do the stairs and the dummy drag, and here I am at the wall. And I literally spent the next ten minutes running into the six foot wall, <laughs> just over and over and over again. And I had a vest on, like I had to I had to wear a, a weighted vest. Yeah, the tactical vests have like a ceramic plate in them, so they they there's no give there. I did learn later that if you can just get high enough on the six foot wall to like catch the plate underneath, then you're golden. I was nowhere near that. Like, that was not happening. But I didn't give up. I didn't give up. I hit that wall. My arms were just black and blue. My hands were just like chewed up. But I'm like, I'm just going to keep hitting this wall until they tell me to stop Again, I think that was like a super important experience for me to have in my life because it was really uncomfortable and really intimidating. And it's all of the things I hate. I'm super vulnerable. Everyone's watching me. It's literally my worst nightmare. <laughs> but holy shit, they sent me to an interview anyway. And so the next phase, yeah, it was just an interview with like the the inspector and the I think there was a staff sergeant in there and then a sergeant and then our people, like our supervisors. And then I got a spot. And But definitely like the very last part of my interview from the, the sergeant at the time was like, so you're going to have to get over that wall. Like we know you didn't do it in the testing, but you are going to have to do it. And so just know that over the next year, you're going to have to get over that wall. So I was like, um okay, no pressure, I have a year, okay. But we had to requalify every year as well. So absolutely, that wall never went away. As long as I was intact, it came up every year again. And every year I was like, here I am at the wall. But I did get over that bitch. I did eventually get over it. I have video that I still reflect on now and think, holy fuck, I can do hard things. Like I can, that was not an easy thing for a five foot five woman, it wasn't yeah, so then I went on to do three weeks of training with those guys.
0: And what was the energy around bringing TAC medics in? Like, was this a corporate thing that they wanted to push and maybe the officers weren't good with it? Or were they welcoming? Did they, did they want it? What was the energy there?
1: The tactical guys were amazing. Like, I actually think they loved it more than our own medics loved it. Like, the paramedic culture is... Kind of a unique one, I think. Like, I, th- I think when you look at the the fire department and the police department, there is a sense of family. There's a brotherhood, sisterhood there that, like, I never really experienced in EMS until I became a TAC medic, and until I was with those guys, like, for weeks on end, and all the training that we used to do together, and that's when I really thought, oh, this is this is what family feels like on the job. This is what teamwork feels like. This is what like that united front and like such amazing support in there. Like I used to always feel like a bit of the outsider, right? Like these guys have been doing their job, doing this part of their job for a really long time. The This whole TAC medic program, before I got on, I think it was about – I don't know, maybe seven years that it had been running with the, the same guys, like our, our same TAC medics. I think like they were kind of used to each other and understood the program. And But it was always kind of expanding, like they were starting to do more things with us and and integrating us more in what they were doing. So that was like exciting, because again, it was just something different, like just something else to do outside of just... Here's another day, another abdo pain. It was just something different. The training was pretty intense, like the three weeks of training that that I did with them was super intense. But that's what their job is, and running through these scenarios, like those guys are just repping it out, repping it out, repping it, out, which I'm sure is a lot of what y- you guys do too on the job. Like when you're doing training stuff, it is dedicated training and. It's like knowing what each other is going to do. It it was like I don't know, it's like watching a, a routine unfold. Yeah. Like it's, they
0: are definitely that that kind of tier one level team is an it's it's another animal. Yeah. When they're not doing I, I've said before, when they're not doing SWAT stuff, they're training on SWAT stuff. Like yes. this is what they do. Yeah.
1: And it is like a choreographed thing. Like it is it's just tight. Like those guys know what they need to it's do. It's
0: professional and it's beautiful to watch.
1: It is. And it was really awesome to be a part of that. And to be sort of like, welcomed into that was a really positive feeling. And admittedly, that's when I felt like oh, I'm at next level responsibility now. Because when I'm with these guys, like, these guys are my responsibility now. And that was a, a daunting task. Like I remember in training, being on the range, and we're we're running like officer down scenarios. And they got the biggest guy that they choose to be the officer down. And he's in all his equipment, vest, carrying all of this stuff. I don't even know how much they weigh at that. But sometimes you're the only medic. That was a whole new thing. I always had a partner, but sometimes you don't. Like sometimes when my TAC medic partner was off and I had a regular partner and there was a TAC call, I'm going there by myself. So running these officer down scenarios by myself and knowing that I've got to go down range and and the only role that those officers have are to keep my ass safe, to get me down there, to get that guy back out to safety – they're not carrying him. Like I have to grab a hold of him and I've got to drag him now. So that's when like the six foot wall became a bit of a piece of cake. When I was like, holy shit, this is so much bigger than that six foot wall now. This is like, he's depending on me, his teammates are depending on me. That was a tremendously big responsibility. I
0: think that's common for people when they're trying to get into, I I can only speak to firefighting, but well, if I can pass this entry test then I'm good enough and strong enough to do the job. It's like, you don't understand. <laughs> no. That's just a ticket in. Yeah. it's That's when the, it gets really hard. Yeah. Like it's, it's way worse than this. But if you're at your max effort to pass the test, how much more room do you have to give to improve beyond that, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was It was some pretty wild training days. But again, I think it really shaped my character. Like, it built and and created and fostered a next-level confidence for me in my job. And,
0: and your abilities. and yeah,
1: yeah. I'm grateful for that. Be, because even now, when I look back, like the best years of my career were in TAC I mean, I had awesome partners. Before that, I did.
0: But you also needed that to get you to the point where you could do TAC
1: Yeah, those were the best years of my career. They really were. I miss those guys. Like I still keep in touch with some of them still. Actually, more of them than I do of actual medics. But they're just like good guys that they were just great to work with and um, super supportive and yeah, those were were good times.
0: (laughs) So let's now step into, you mentioned PTSD earlier on, we sort of touched on that a little bit. Maybe walk me through your experiences call-wise, sort of the journey towards realizing that things that affected you, then we can go on through how you are to where you are today.
1: In October of 2016, I wish that I could say that, oh, my PTSD happened on this day, (laughs) and it was this call. I think that I was probably just getting by for a lot of years before I realized that I was in trouble. And it was October 19th. I was supposed to go into the I think it was the second last night or the last night of my split. So my three and three, I'd already worked the whole split and I got up to go to work on that last night. And I was like, I don't want to get off the couch. I still remember like just watching the clock thinking kind of should be in the shower by now and kind of should be dressed by now and kind of should be in the car by now. But I'm in the same spot. I, Reached out to Dan Patterson. He was my supervisor at the time. And I'm like, dude, I'm supposed to be like in the car on my way into work, but I'm at home on the couch. He was like, are you sick? Like, this is a text conversation. Are you sick? I'm like, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but I can't physically get off the couch right now. I don't know what's happening. And so he said, well, can can you get to work? I'm like, probably. I don't know if I'm supposed to be at work. I just didn't know what was going on. It was like really surreal feeling. I don't even remember getting ready, but I got ready and I was in my uniform and I drove to Tompkin and I was in the parking lot. I texted Dan. He came out to the parking lot and he's like, what's going on? I said, I don't know. I don't know. Something doesn't feel right. I don't know. So he said, okay, just come in. Let's talk. And so we had a conversation. We contacted the EFAP. Because, I mean, I was always open to mental health. I always, like, was like, yeah, if I need to talk to someone, I'll talk to someone. And so we contact the EFAP and got put on hold for a really long time. And, <laughs> and then, like, nobody called me back and... I was like, okay, well, maybe I just need like coming into my weekend, supposed to be back to work on days on the Monday, that really short changeover. It
0: was a long shift. It's the last shift of the split.
1: Horrible. Yeah. that's. It's uh, just
0: volume. You're just tired. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, so I'm like, I think maybe I, yeah, maybe I just need a little bit of, just need a rest. So I went home and the EFAP did not return my call, which was super. I called them again. I called them on the Monday because I called Dan. I said, I'm I don't think I'm gonna be able to come in today. Like I think I just I think I just need a bit of a break. I'm gonna go see my family doctor, I'm gonna call the EFAP. Maybe I just need like a couple of a little mental health top-up. That's all. So I said, give me like two weeks and I'll be good. That speaks a lot to my like wanting to control a very uncontrollable situation. But I'd already like I told myself, just two weeks. So I made an appointment with my doctor, drove to my doctor's office told her look like, this is what I'm experiencing. I realize now I've I've probably not slept well in the last, I don't know, 10 years. And, um, and I'm starting to have a lot of like intrusive thoughts. And, and like, I knew what some of the warning signs I think might have been, I recognized that I was having some of those warning signs, but I still like was like, no, 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 let me tell you what you're gonna do to to support me right now. So I told the doctor, I just need a note, just write me a note, put me off for a couple of weeks. I already have an appointment with a psychologist, I made it last week. So obviously felt something was coming on, <laughs> whatever, like a cold or something. So I said, I already have this appointment. I'm going to see her in three weeks. So you just leave. Just write me a note that gets me off work for two weeks till I can have this appointment. I'm going to have this appointment. I'm going to be back to work.
0: This will ease off and we'll be back at it. This
1: is how it's going to go. I'd already written the script. This is how it's going to go. So that was the last time I saw that family doctor. She compared my intrusive thoughts and lack of sleep and nightmares and overwhelming anxiety to the new computer system that she had just installed in her office and thought that it was like the same. So she was very quick to write me a prescription, which I was like, what are you even doing? I just need you to, I don't need a prescription. I just need you to write a note and fill out these WSIB forms. Cause that's the other interesting thing. Like Everyone's like, "Oh, like sun life. Here's your sun life forms." I'm like, "No, no, no. Like I, this didn't. This is not because I, I've suffered something in my personal life. Like, look what I do for a living. This is work related. So I felt like advocacy was like important from the get go, like from the gates.
0: Which is hard for people when they might not necessarily know what's going on with themselves. So Impossible. How do you advocate for yourself if you don't know what's going on?
1: Exactly. And so I remember saying to the supervisor that showed up with the Sun Life. I'm not going to mention his name. But I was like, well, I don't need Sun Life forms. I need WSIB forms. But I didn't bring WSIB forms. And you're just going to like, you just need some time off to like, this is Sun Life. I'm like, this is not Sun Life. And I remember that's the first time the anger showed up. And he was a friend of mine. But I was like, give me the fucking WSIB forms. This is not a short-term disability thing. That much I know for sure. Down the road, if it turns out to be that, we'll deal with that then. But right now, this is the ball that needs to start rolling. So he didn't have those forms. So I I did get some from the family doctor that I never went back to again. She had no problem writing on there that I refused pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) which WSIB doesn't look favorably upon but that's sort of where it started. And then I just went home. I'm like, okay, now I just wait. I wait for this appointment where she's going to fix me in one appointment. And I'm going to go back to work and life is going to like go back to normal. I never went back to the road ever again after that. And I had no idea that that's what was going to happen. But I went to that psychologist's appointment. I remember her explaining to me like the whole process of sort of investigating this and assessing and determining like a diagnosis, if there is one is going to take like about a month of appointments. So I was like, but I'm only going to be off for three weeks. So can we like expedite this whole thing? And, and she was like, no, like, this is how it's going to go. And I'll write you the notes that you need. And let's just do these appointments every week. They were like two and a half hours long, these assessments. And, um, so it was a month of appointments. And and of course, two and a half hours is a lot of time every week for four weeks in a row. The stuff that started spilling out of me, and also the stuff that I would not allow to spill out of me. That's when I started to realize like, wow, this is bigger. This is not going to go with the plan that I had hoped. Like, this is not a three-week thing. And And we're going to be just back to doing what I was doing before, which was like just, just coping. I didn't realize that. And so at the end of the four weeks, I felt pretty broke wide open and terrified and just kind of helpless, really. Like this is all out there now, or as much as I've allowed to be out there is out there now. I can see it. It's literally like I've laid these really uncomfortable cards, these disturbing cards on the table that I'm staring at now. And now what do I do? Like, what do I do? All I wanted to do was just shuffle them all back up and jam them back inside. Back and,
0: to the comfort.
1: Yeah, bury them. Like, just shove that shit down. That's what I've been doing for 10 years or more. And that's all I wanted to do. And that was the most frustrating thing that there was just, here it is now. It's all in front of you. You don't get to just stuff it in and hide anymore. And that was super scary. So I remember going to the office and my psychologist saying, so, okay, so I've done the assessment and my diagnosis is PTSD. And she was very matter of fact. And I remember in that moment going, wow, good. Okay. So now how do we fix it? So like, for me, it was like, thank God, a diagnosis, you can can tell me now, you know what this is, let's just fix it now. It's like doing
0: your differential diagnosis as a medic and you find out what the path is and you go down that path and you fix the problem.
1: Yep. So now that was my focus. Like, okay, we know what it is. Perfect. Amazing. Now I'm so empowered. Let's just fix it now. How long will that take? I was like so much about the timeline, so so when do I have to go back to work? That became the dialogue. It like in the beginning it was like in three weeks I'm going, but then once all this stuff came out, I was like, oh God, when do I have to go back now? Now I started to get scared
0: about going. Because you felt like you had a time limit to get all a lot of work done.
1: Yeah, and there was also this like, I mean, a very like unrealistic perception of things, but like people are going to notice I'm gone. So I need to hurry this up because I don't want to tell anybody. I just want to like disappear, take care of it, then come back. And people say, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. I'm like, yeah, you know, is this on vacay or whatever? Like I felt an urgency. Like I did not want people to notice that I was going through this and I was struggling with this. I did not want to share that with anybody. So the quicker we were able to fix it and the quicker I was able to go back, then nobody needed to know anything. I could just do all of this in secret.
0: Which is interesting because we're in a rush then to get back to the thing that caused the problem in the first place.
1: Yeah, did not have that that insight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's all hindsight for us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I started my recovery journey, which I think was pretty slow because I really liked to keep those cards close to me. I mean, I say this six and a half years later, I've still not allowed certain things to come out. I've still kept a lot of things really close to me. And But this really fascinating thing that I learned really early in my recovery, because I remember saying to my therapist, like, am I going to have to tell you everything? Like, I have 22 years on the job Am I going to have to tell you everything? Like, how on earth do I even begin to unpack 22 years? Because I knew it wasn't one call. I knew that. I knew it was this cumulative. I always use the analogy of like Shaggy and Scooby and the snowball going down the hill. That's literally what, that's how my career unfolded. And then at the bottom, when they hit the wall and they all go flying, that was like my PTSD discovery and I literally was like, I'm never going to be able to, to do that. And she said, no, it's not like that. That's the beauty of this kind of work is that when you start talking about things, the difficult things, you start healing other things. You aren't going to have to talk about everything. We're just going to unpack the things that you're ready to unpack right now. And while you're doing that, just know that you are healing these other things. I was like, "Thank." Fuck, like, thank God that that's how this is going to go. Because I just, I was terrified to have to put all that out there.
0: Because really, it's not about each individual thing, but more of how you were at the moment, how you experienced it, and how you processed it, where you put it yeah it's that that you're working on, yep. not the call
1: exactly. hundred yeah. percent that like brought me a little bit of comfort in those early days of recovery, where I just thought, like, I don't know how this is going to go and and I like to control things. I like to manage what this path is going to look like, and that was probably the first in my time in my life where I realized like this is not in my hands now. this is somebody else is going to need to walk me through this and And that was scary.
0: And we talked a bit about identity before we sat down and we'll, we'll, we will talk about that here as well. But do you feel like it was a big identity hit? And I was thinking as you're talking that as we, I always wanted to use the word mature, but just because we get older doesn't mean we get more mature. (laughs) But as you age, we have this linear chronological mentality that as I age, I will, I will know more and more and more who I am. Right, I'll I'll know my identity, and it will be more and more solidified. What really rocks that is these ideas that there's at many points in your life you may wake up and realize you don't know who you are, or you don't, or or you're different than what you thought you were, and that's going to change. And that might not just happen once; it might happen continuously. It really messes with your head because we like the comfort of like I know who I am, I know my world, I know how I operate. This is how I see things and approach things. And then all of a sudden that's turned upside down and you have to look back at going, well, was I wrong that entire time? Like just all these questions.
1: And I think that is the hardest piece of this is exactly that identity role. Like, who do you think you are? and or who do you believe yourself to be and because all the stuff that we put in into this role that we're playing and make no mistake that's all it is it's just a role we even put on a costume like and i admittedly did not have a clear separation between the mother the partner the friend the daughter the sister i did not have a clear separation between that woman and the woman that went to work every day and did those crazy friggin things that I did at work. I do remember that when I realized that I didn't know who I was, and that's that's was the scariest because I remember about six months, maybe into my recovery, maybe it was a little bit longer. My therapist said to me, Have you ever considered the possibility that you may not return to the back of an ambulance? (laughs) And I loved my therapist. I still have her to this day. I wanted to punch her in the throat. I was like, what do you mean? Like, where do you get off saying something like that to me? Do you think that's going to help me? I remember being filled with so much emotion in that moment. Like, no, I have never thought of it. And that's That's what we're
0: here to do. We're here to get me back. Yes. And you're saying I'm not capable. Yes. Mm
1: -hmm and so it felt like a, an attack but it's cuz i didn't know who the fuck i was it's cuz that's the only thing i knew i only knew that person that did that job so when she fate or presented me with this like image of this other life i was like what is that i don't even know what that looks like i don't know who who is that person that can even do that i only know this person i only know this version of myself i don't know how to be anything else Yeah, that was terrifying.
0: As much as the job was putting you through experiences that were difficult, again, I want to tie it back to you know you were doing something that spoke to your core, like this meaning, this purpose, this empathy, this compassion, this place to put that, this making, like literally helping and making a difference in the world. It seems like, well, what else would I want to do? Because that's not only is that do I feel good, but it is a good thing for me to do this. And now you want to take that away from me? What else am I going to do that's not that?
1: Yes. Yes. And when I say my earliest memory was to serve people, that was like, it was totally a gut punch. Like, what do I get to do now? Like, what do I get to do? Because all I know is to care for others. Or
0: how do I earn my value? How do I earn love?
1: Yes. How
0: do I feel justified in people caring for me if I don't earn it?
1: Right. Yeah, that was really... In that moment I remember, like I say, being filled with so much anger and resentment and frustration and and but then I realized like really what I was feeling was grief. I needed to grieve this chapter of my life as not being something that I'm meant to do anymore. And I did not know how to process that. I realized logically that this workplace and this business was hurting me. It was not going to change. If I went back to it, I'm going to have to wear that uniform and put that stethoscope around my neck and go into those calls and do the hard things and have the tough conversations and see the trauma. And that's never going to go away. So I recognized that that was no longer a safe place for me. But the part of me that just craved to make a difference and craved to connect with people and to help people and support people and hold space for people and all of those things. I just didn't know how am I ever going to be able to do that again. And so that was my, I think my first sort of lesson in starting to just grieve the loss. My therapist has explained that PTSD has a lot of like, anxiety in it. We know it's in the same family. Grieving is necessary. And that's kind of the part that I didn't realize until that moment that even all of these things, all of these exposures that I'd had, all of these instances that I had been carrying around with me, all of these, the calls and the people and everything, all of that, I needed to grieve it as a loss. I needed to feel those things, like it's one thing, you know, you can be empathetic and you can be compassionate and you can be kind, but it doesn't mean you really necessarily have to feel anything in those. You can absolutely behave in compassionate ways, but not take on the feeling part of things and still make it look real. But I think in order for me to just process all of these experiences and process these connections and these disconnections meant that I was going to have to feel all this stuff now. And that's the part of me that I didn't realize I had shut off for a very long time, probably at a self-preservation, survival, all of those things. Like, oh, I can't take this on because I have to go home and I I have another role to play there. It was in that moment that I realized, like, now I've got to sit here with this stuff. And now I have to feel it. Now, all of these things that I just attached as like visual Memories. Now I had to like line it up with the emotional part of me. And in order to let those things go, I just had to feel that, God, that pain and that loss and that all of the really ugly things. I had to feel it.
0: Just like we talked earlier about how our culture may set up people for difficulty because of the way that we frame death and loss. Do you think we set ourselves up and each other up in this emergency services culture that we see that there's one path, it's like you start this job, these are the steps, you do 30 years, there's a retirement party, you get your whatever plaque or whatever they hand you and you go out and then you do your retirement. There you go, that's the path. Where what I've thought before is that, and anything short of that is seen as a failure, or you weren't good enough, or you failed, where I've had a thought before that maybe I have 10 years of this giving in me. Maybe I have 15 years of this giving in me. Maybe I have five years of this giving in me for this thing. And I can give all of myself for that amount of time, but maybe for me, that's my time here. But it's very much tied to, well, then what else? And you need a job, and you got to work, you got to pay your mortgage. There's all these practical things around it too, and the benefits, so we stay in. And maybe we don't realize that maybe for me, it was five years in this and then something else where I think it's common in other industries where people are changing jobs in the business world for sure. Like they change company to company to company, CEOs do all the time, but we're one of the few, I guess one of the few jobs you get in and you're just expected, well, you just do 30 years and you retire and this is what you do. But maybe you're not a 30 year person and that's no, that's no judgment on anybody. It's just, I'm just trying to reframe as maybe if we all had that going in, I'll be aware as I go along and I'll, more conscious of when I'm reaching my limit, and then I'll I'll have a plan to get out, and I'll know how to get out. But we don't. We don't go in with a plan to get out if something happens.
1: No. But I I also think that was the culture then. Like, the culture when I started was like, yeah, so you're going to see some shitty things that the average person doesn't see. So deal with it. If you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Like that's not, a, that's not just a, a cliche. That was legit. That's how people looked at it. We didn't talk about mental health. Like I say, when we did those bad calls, we didn't go back to the station and hug it out and talk and let our emotions come out. We went back to the station, talked about other ridiculous things, made fun of somebody, laughed a bit, drank way too much coffee. And then if it spilled over after shift, we go to the bar. We didn't realize that we were coping at that time. We didn't know we were debriefing because those labels didn't exist back then. So now, oddly enough, you see this new generation of first responder come in. They have no problem saying, oh, yeah, no, I'm only going to be here five years. <laughs> like, Or they have no problem saying, I've been here a year. This is not the work for me. I wish that I had that sense of empowerment back then to be able to say or decide, we'll see how this goes. It wasn't like that. And oddly enough, in my entire career, I can count on one hand the number of people that I saw retire. Where did they go? Nobody knows. (laughs) They just weren't at work anymore. But at that time, it was like, "Mm, that person blew their back out. Now I look back and I say, did they? Or... Did their brain just stop being able to take it on anymore and it just showed up as a back injury? That's what probably happened. That's what I think is still happening because of the culture.
0: But I guess the difficulty is that there is some truth to the fact that this work needs to be done. This is the way it needs to be done. This is the job and you need to be able to do it. Because it's in these very important moments, like we're talking about, of what the work that we're doing. So there is truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. It's figuring out for you that half of it, mm-hmm. and then also recognizing when it's too much. That may be different for each person. Yeah. So it all comes down to self awareness.
1: Yeah. And you're doing this now. This is the fact that we're even having this conversation today 20 years ago, we could not have had this conversation. We couldn't have had it like so openly and with like the intention to put it out there and have as many people listen to us talk as possible. We didn't do that then. Obviously, there is an evolving movement of culture, mental health. We talk about mental health now like, well, yeah, we're all talking about mental health. Like what's the big deal? But 20 years ago, because we didn't talk about it, we sure shit didn't know when things were happening to us. Like we absolutely didn't. I love the fact now that there's so many organizations that are forward thinking, they're doing workplace wellness initiatives and behavioral wellness initiatives and partnering with Wounded Warriors. And there's all of these organizations that are like, no, no, no. we know you guys do really shitty things. Like, let us help you. Let's talk about it more. And That's why I think the new generation is saying, Yeah, I'm going to do this, but I know that this is a a finite amount of time that I'm going to be able to do this, and I'm good with it.
0: I think we both realize that there is a definite support and help and accountability for a workplace to do things to help their employees. But there's also a strong accountability and ownership on the person themselves. And things that they can seek out and do outside of what their job is providing for them. 100%. Maybe walk me through that. Like what helped you that the workplace was providing? What have you discovered about yourself and found helpful outside of that? And then maybe we can go into, like we talked about, a change in identity. How people tend to switch from one identity to now the new identity of like I have PTSD And it becomes the thing you're stuck in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so start out with just your healing journey up till today. And then we'll talk about that identity aspect and then about how the healing never really ends.
1: Initially, this was 2016 when I first went off and, I, and I, I told you, I was like, I didn't want to tell anybody. I was, there was a lot of shame in this for me. It didn't identify it as shame at the time. It was just like, nobody needs to know my business. Like that's how I felt about it. I didn't think for a second that there might be other people that were feeling the same way I was feeling. I think initially I was like, I need to seek as much external support from my organization as possible so that my organization will never know this is happening to me. Like I said, I I sought out a psychologist totally separate to the workplace and I didn't really share what I was feeling with anybody at work. Like Dan Patterson knew, obviously, maybe a couple of other people knew, like my partner Sarah knew at the time. But Sarah and I were like way better friends than anything else. So it was easy to have that conversation with her. But I really separated myself from the organization because I really just felt like they didn't have what I needed. I told myself they didn't have what I needed. There was no indication to me that they were going to take care of me, that this was just, I'm going to have to do this on my own. I have to figure this out on my own. I'm not sure if that narrative was, if it's true, but that's definitely what I told myself then. I was really fortunate and I genuinely empathize with the people that have a, a really terrible WSIB experience. I was fortunate that once I had the right paperwork filled out, WSIB was, that whole process was pretty seamless for me, thank God, because I've heard horror stories. But I just sort of, I felt in those early weeks, like, just in a hurry. Like, just let's just get this show on the road. Let's just get this sorted out. Just, just get me back to good and I can go back to the road. And yeah, and it's just like, this didn't even happen. It was like a hiccup. When I started from the time of my diagnosis, it seemed like every four weeks we would have to have that conversation with my therapist. Like, how are you feeling? Like, how are you feeling about... Going back to work. And with each like four week block that was passing, I was more and more terrified to return to work. I realized I'm not safe there. That's the first time in my career that I felt like not safe and not safe because of me. And or
0: the people, just the job,
1: yeah, yeah. Like, I just was like, that's not an environment where I can do this healing stuff. I didn't really know what healing looked like at that time because at that time it was just like everything was bubbling over. So I'm like, holy shit, I just need to figure out how to stop this from happening. I can't go, I can't even think about going back to there right now. Like I said, I, I started this process in October of 2016, and then by December. I realized, okay, this is a bit of a road now. This is not just uh, three appointments and back to work. And so I really love to write. I've always like really liked to write. And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to put it out there now. Maybe that's a part of the, the healing that needs to take place. I've been hiding for months now and kind of fielding, any sort of conversations around my mental health and any conversation around why I was off, I've been just sort of deflecting and, and avoiding. I love those things, they're my favorite. And so I thought, maybe I just need to, to just put it out there. Maybe I just need to start talking about this. Maybe that's what's gonna help me round a corner in this whole recovery thing. So I wrote a little Facebook post, fucking Facebook, and I just put out this thing that said, here I am. This is what I'm struggling with. But I am determined, I'm gonna get better and and I'm gonna be back to work and I'm I'm gonna be back to doing what I love. So, you know, I posted it like I don't know, seven o'clock at night. I tucked my kids into bed and I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and Daryl was at home. We weren't married at that oh no, we were married. We were just married at that time. And he he was like, um, have you looked at Facebook this morning? And I'm like, No. Like, I was actually like, really trying to separate myself from social media, because it felt like, you know, social media can be really disruptive to a brain that's like just trying to heal. So I'm like, no, I don't go on there in the morning anymore. I know it's not good to start my day that way. He's like, you're going to want to see this. And so I opened Facebook the next day, and my messenger had over a 1000 messages and I was like, what the fuck? Because you know when the little red dot is yeah. and it has like... Is he two? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, um, w- what is happening? So I closed out of it thinking something is glitched somewhere. And then my post itself had been shared like an unbelievable amount of times. And I'm like what's happening? And he's like, I'm not sure, but people definitely need to talk about this, obviously. So I start going through these messages, because it like gave me an opportunity to care for people. I want I get to connect with people again. And then after like two days of trying to respond to messages, Daryl was like, do you, you do you see what's happening here? Like you need to you need to kind of separate yourself. I see what's happening here. I'm watching this, this like woman that with the cape on that used to run out the door to work every day. She's back here. You need to recognize that. And God love my husband for being a mirror. That poor guy has taken a lot of my shit over the years when he's just tried to hold up that mirror for me, which I have definitely been resistant to, I put that mildly, but I realized like, I'm now I'm going down another road here. I'm trying to save the world in a totally different way. And I was so raw and it was so early in my recovery. I'm not capable of taking this on. But message after message was like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. and I remember thinking like, this whole world is like, these people are falling apart. And nobody's taking care of them. And that's when I realized, like, how important these conversations are. It was that day that I was like, all I wanted to do was hide. I'm like, I can't hide anymore. Like, these people need to be heard and they need their stories to be told. And they need advocacy and they need somebody to just help them, to hear them. And help them feel safe. And, and so while it was like terrifying, because the news kept came calling, like, we want to interview you. Can we come to your house? Fuck no, you can't come to my house. Like, this is my sanctuary. This is where I've been hiding for four months. You can't come here. And, and Daryl, I remember Daryl saying, like, this was what you wanted to happen. You can't shut this off now. Like you have you have to protect yourself and protect your recovery. But you need to have these conversations because maybe this is what you're meant to do now. Maybe right now what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to start these difficult conversations. There's a thousand people in your inbox right now that are begging you to be a voice. I was like, I can't be that voice right now. I am like a broken human. I don't think I am... Strong enough to be that voice, and he's like, obviously you need to take care of yourself first. But just know that, like, the you're meant to have these conversations. You're stronger than you think,
0: and establish boundaries for yourself while yep. you do it. Yeah, or maybe you didn't have them before.
1: Exactly, because that's the thing. My I, my tendency was like, okay, I'm not going to save all these people now, because and that's what filled my spirit. But there was definitely. No boundaries. Yep. And so it was a really positive learning experience for me to really like tap into what am I feeling right now? Like what am I feeling other than compelled to help people? But what else? And what's is in what's
0: resonating there? from their messages in me that I need to?
1: Yeah. So I mean I did I did some of the interviews and I did like C B C radio and and had City and C T V come to our house and And it was like, super scary. But at the same time, like, I really feel like it gave me an opportunity to just start talking about the very thing that I had been running from for years and years and years. And like I said, it allowed me to be a voice for people that just weren't there yet in their recovery game. Some of them weren't even in recovery yet. They were like, I am absolutely still going to work every day and white knuckling my way through my shifts. And So that experience connected me with like with Temer Memorial Trust at that time and Wounded Warriors and God, the Minister of Labor of all things. And so I started to get invited to all these conferences and it was a different person going to those conferences now, because now I was like, okay, so how am I first? I'm going to check in with myself first. And now I can prepare for all these things. And I know what it's going to look like. And I know what I need to take care of myself now, which was like a whole new realm for me. I'd never considered myself first, like never. So It was awesome. I mean, like I said, all of those amazing connections. I met some really amazing people, people that I still stay in touch with all these years later. And it absolutely like shone a spotlight on the fact that like we just need to do better. We need to take care of our people and the organizations have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to each other in a culture where we don't always look after each other very well. It was like a really scary time, but a really empowering time in my recovery. and and it, it kind of like took some of the pressure that I was putting on myself to return to the job. and like kind of when I was at that place of like, who am I now? like, maybe I'm this person. Maybe I'm a person that's able to help other people, but just not in that way anymore. So kind of was like exciting for me to think like, I can do other things. I'm not just that person in that uniform every day. Maybe I'm meant to do this person for the other people in uniform every day. But then I sort of thought, okay, oh my God, I know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to save all the first responders that are broken or they don't know they're broken yet. I'm going to save them all. I'm going to change the way we do things. I'm going to change the way WSIB does things. And I'm going to fix all these organizations that don't talk enough about mental health. So that's not how that goes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this is a great segue because what I want to talk about next is, which we touched on prior to us sitting down, was how this diagnosis, this self-awareness, this healing journey can become a pitfall that people find themselves in as the new identity. And that becomes who they are that can actually hinder. It's an important phase to go through because you need to be in it. The end goal is to come out the other side and to not let it become the new identity, which is really hard because when you do get attention, you're speaking, you feel, again, you feel like you are, and you are, you're making a difference. But that can also keep you in that role of like, well, if I heal up, if I heal, if I change, I'm I'm not this anymore, then what am I? And we don't want to go through that, what am I again? So we stay in it. So maybe just talk about that and being aware of that, about how to move through it. yourself and for for other people because they need to see that that's part of the journey.
1: I think what I I noticed at that time was that, yeah, I was just sort of replacing this identity with ultimately the same one. It was still just a way for me to just hide from what I really needed to see in myself because I'm like, oh, I'm still helper. I'm still compassionate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it was 2018. I went back to work. And I thought, I have a totally different vision now. I don't need to go back to the road. I'm going to go back and I'm going to fix everything here. And maybe that's what I'm meant to do now. But it still fills my spirit. And like I said, it still gives me all of these same things. But now it's, yeah, it's for it's for us. It's other people like me now.
0: So sorry, what was back to work? What was that role?
1: They were at that time just starting a, a paramedic culture and engagement department, which Kind of had a, a lot of things under that umbrella, but mental health was under that umbrella. So because that's the other unfortunate thing is when you go off work, whether it's a physical injury or mental health injury, there our modified work program is shit, like it is. There is no really structured, It's kind of like, well, you can go into education if you want and you can go maybe just move trucks around if you want or there's no structure. And like absolutely a person suffering an injury that's coming back to work to a very physical job Needs to have structure. You need to know what you're doing every day. And and what I experienced in a, with a mental health injury is that's even more important. I need to know what I'm doing every day. And you how can-
0: this is a step on the path.
1: Exactly. Right. And, and like- and
0: What is the next step behind
1: Timeline, right. all of those things. Yeah. I need a plan. Yeah. Like, show me the plan so that I can actually evaluate the effectiveness of this plan. We is need this- some
0: order in the chaos. Yes.
1: But it's not like that. And so- in the culture and engagement, I was sort of like tasked to focus on kind of the mental health framework that was unfolding and this sort of like psychological wellness. And and of course, I was like, yeah, let's, I want to do all of this. But I remember Dan Patterson saying to me like, because there's this sense of urgency, like I'm back now, let me do all the things because I'm here now. And I know what needs to be done because I'm living it. I'm experiencing it. Also, a super valuable piece is the fact that I was off for two years and I didn't hear from a fucking soul from my organization. So I'd given them 22 years and I didn't get one single phone call other than from the people I call friends to check in. And that's where I'm like, what's wrong with you fucking people? Like, we need to know that you give a shit about us. That's super important. It's important to the guy that's at home for six months with a knee injury. And it's important for the person that's at home for six months with a mental health injury. Like, they need to know value is important. It's important to feel that. And it's important to have that from the organization that, make no mistake, you are giving yourself to it day in and day out. Like, obviously, and there's an ultimate price to be paid in doing that. So when I went back to culture and engagement and and started all this mental health stuff, I remember saying to Dan Patterson, like, when do we see the fruits of our labor? Like, when do we start seeing that this is making a difference? Why do I feel like I'm just waiting for meetings? Why do I feel like I'm created this and I'm... I'm waiting for something miraculous to happen. I'm waiting for like this big, like, oh, thank goodness. It's all fixed.
0: You're waiting for the pulse to come back in the garage.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And turn around and go, can you believe this?
1: Exactly. (laughs) I'm like, I want to see, I want to see that. And Dan's like, well, let me just tell you something. (laughs) He says, and his analogy is perfect. I use it all the time. He's like, have you ever watched an aircraft carrier turn in the middle of the ocean? I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? He says, have you ever looked at an aircraft carrier turn in the middle of the ocean? I'm like, well, I guess. He's like, but do you ever really see it moving? No. That's what this is like. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, what does that even mean, man? And he was like, it's turning. But it's just slow as shit. You're not going to be able to see that every day. You, But there is going to be a time where you're going to realize, oh, look, the aircraft carrier is now facing the opposite direction. That's what this whole movement is going to look like. You need to be patient. Oh, okay. So put that on my list as something to work on because patience is not something I'm very good at.
0: Yeah, it's going from crisis management, which is what you did before, Mm -hmm. to project management. And they're totally different mentalities.
1: Yeah. And so now it became like, oh, I have to, this is a whole new thing I have to learn about myself now. This is a whole new characteristic I'm going to need to try and develop in myself now if I want this to be successful. It's not that like, oh shit, look at that. We have a pulse. But it's not like that. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah,
0: and you initially, that it showed that you initially wanted to treat yourself like a crisis manager, right? Come in. We know the name. How long is this going to take? Fix it. Let's get back to business. Where you realize that we're not crises to be managed. We're projects to be managed. Which also turn like ships in the ocean.
1: Yeah. And that was like, disheartening. I couldn't really accept that because while we're waiting for this shift to take place, people are dying. People are killing themselves. People are going off work. People's families are being just totally disintegrated. All of this is happening at a really fast rate while we're all just waiting for the aircraft carrier to turn. I couldn't accept that. And I realized in that, like, my injury is continuing. I'm not in this place of recovery anymore here because I'm now I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm really resentful. These are not good things for recovery. And so I was finding I, I'm going into work every day and I'm sitting in my car for 10 or 15 minutes, like, angry. And I have a great fucking life. I don't need to be angry, but I was. Every day I'm like, I just gotta get it to the second floor there, but I just have to calm my shit down. Every day I was angry. And I'm there not quite a year. I went back to work in November and now we're in August of 2019. And one of our lovely dispatchers was murdered by her husband. She was someone I worked with my entire career. We were on the same shift. And such a horrible, horrible circumstance. But even in an administrative capacity that I was working at that time, I absolutely felt the ripple effect of that and how significant that was for our people and how painful that was for our people to process And like I said, now I'm sitting in this role where all I want to do is support people in their mental health and support people through really hard things. But I'm also, I'm in it. Like, I'm still trying to support myself. And this is also a really personal experience for me too, because I knew her too. So I'm sharing this grief, but I'm also wanting to be this person that's going to support people and help people and give them what they need right now. And I'm angry and I'm resentful and I'm looking at my organization feeling like you're failing me and everybody else here. And now we are all dealing with something that has hit us closer to home than anything else has in a long time. And nobody is, I felt, nobody's doing anything. And so add on more anger, more frustration, more pain, more grief and i have the awareness cuz i've been at this recovery thing for a few years i feel myself like regressing this is not a growth opportunity for me now i am i am going
0: backwards that's key to in the healing journey to realize you become to the self awareness of am i moving forward am i moving backwards yeah and there sometimes there is a three steps forward two steps back like it's not a linear But you really do recognize when you're sliding too far Oh, yeah. It's
1: three steps today. Ooh, it's another one tomorrow. And I'm just going back. Every time I'm driving to that station, I'm going backwards. And so I called Dan Patterson. Poor Dan Patterson. That guy's been carrying the weight of a lot of my shit for a lot of years. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I called him and I'm like, so I'm over at Starbucks at Trinity Common." And I called Dan. I'm like, so I'm over in the parking lot. He's like, oh, are you working today? I'm like, well, I was there, but now I'm just drinking coffee because I'm too fucking mad to go into the building. He's like, okay, I'll be right over. Dan came and got into my car and I had a coffee for him and he just sat. He didn't say anything. And that was the first time that I experienced the holding where someone held space for me. Fuck, that was powerful. And I think because we'd known each other and just loved each other as friends for so long, that like, I knew I didn't have to say anything. He knew he didn't have to say anything. We just sat there. We just had our coffee. And I don't even know, maybe a half an hour where neither one of us said anything and then we just like just had a conversation but it felt like the most natural thing to sit there in total si- my husband doesn't even like to sit in silence <laughs> with me and but and plus i don't like i don't really leave a lot of room for silence like i don't but but that was like a really powerful exchange that we had that day and i said i'm going to go home and he said yep i know that's okay you go home and I felt like, I know I wasn't, but I felt like, fuck, I I failed again. I, I can't go back there. I can't. And I did really look at it as a failure. I felt like I failed all these people that I was going to save. And I felt like a part of myself. I failed a part of myself. And I felt like that was like one of those really significant plummets in my recovery where I thought, I I need to look at things differently now. I need to approach this differently. This is no longer about when am I going to return to work. It's now become what now? And so I went off, started my my sort of process all over again and started now addressing the anger. I didn't, anger had never come up for me before. Anger is just kind of, it's like your body saying, well, this is how it's going to come out. But now start investigating what's behind the anger. And that's when I realized there's a lot of grief there. There's a lot of just unresolved pain, basically, underneath all of that shame, guilt, all of that. And it just happens. Disappointment, to frustration. Oh, God. Yeah,
0: anger is just a flag on the play. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So- like I said, I just kind of felt like, all right, here I am again. I'm going to start again and.
0: Or do the next step in the journey yeah. as opposed to seeing it as a starting over.
1: At that time, I didn't have the insight to recognize, oh no, this is just that nonlinear journey. It definitely felt like. Oh fuck! Like now, what? And
0: and maybe if you hadn't done it, you wouldn't have had that epiphany.
1: Totally, I mean, it was necessary. It's a, again, it's that hindsight thing. Oh, I see it now. I know exactly what it was. And and you know, I'm so fortunate because my husband has had a recovery journey of his own. So
0: yeah. So tell me about Daryl meeting him, your journey together, and how that's been healing. And then I want to touch on music and how it's been healing for you too. So yeah. let's do that.
1: Daryl and I are a Tinder success story. We legit met on Tinder and we actually just started working together. Like, we had a mutual interest in music. And so, I don't think really either one of us was ready for a relationship, but we met and we really connected and we like talked about music. And then we we're like, oh my God, let's just play music all the time. And so, we didn't really get into a relationship right away. It was more like all we wanted to do was just play music together. At that time, I was like backup singer for Tyler Young and shit, we had some good times, me and Ty. And so like the first time I ever actually met Daryl, I had a rehearsal with Tyler and the guys. And so I said, well, just come. Like, I hadn't even met him yet in person. I actually hadn't even talked to him yet. Like we had just been going back and forth via text so he's like, "Well, okay, I'll come." So, "Well, here's my address. Just come and get me." And and then I had that wave of like, "What am I doing?" <laughs> like, I just gave a total stranger, I've never even talked to him, my address and but anyway, he shows up at the door says hi and Daryl has a very like distinct speaking voice so I was like wow this is you're a whole lot of dude here <laughs> and uh so I'm like okay well let's just go to my rehearsal and I'm not even thinking like of course my band is gonna be like who the fuck is this guy like <laughs> you know and so I'm like this is my friend Daryl like I-, I can't tell you anything more than that because I don't really know who he is I just gave him my address and I've uh, and now we're here so we left that rehearsal and I'm driving back to Cambridge and Daryl's like, so why are you a backup singer? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know. That's what I've always done. He's like, like, you have a voice. Like, why don't, why don't you just want to be, why don't you want to just freaking sing? I'm like, I don't know. I just sing with Ty. Ty just does everything. I just show up. I sing my songs. He pays me. I leave. We started just like, again, just Daryl played guitar. He was a drummer or he is a drummer, but he could play guitar and so we started just jamming out and he's like well do you want to like try to get a gig I'm like like what do you mean like the two of us like me by myself like and he was like yeah so I'm like well I guess but uh I didn't even know how to do that so he's like well you totally know how to sing like what's the difference you're already doing it so it's January of 2015 and we the place, the Finn McCool's we always used to play at. me and Ty and the guys, he has like a cancellation. He's like, I just had a band cancellation. It's 10 days away. Do you and your friend just like want to do this? I need somebody to do it. Do you just want to do it? So I'm like, 10 days. (laughs) We don't have a single set of any kind. We needed three 45 minute sets. So I'm like, yeah, we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So... So we got to work and then I got the flu. <laughs> and like literally five days out of us playing, I feel I'm at death's door with the influenza. And, but I'm like, I can't cancel. This is our, this is our debut. So we, we manage, I don't even know, in 10 days and me, sick as a dog, to somehow throw together three 45 minute sets and we go to Finn McCool's and we, do this. I don't, it's a blur, quite honestly, but it was, oh my God, so much fun. And that's where it all started. And then about a month later, Two months later, Ty's like sends me a text, so I know you know you're doing lots with Daryl. So like, if you want to just like keep going with Daryl, just keep going with Daryl. And I I text Ty like, did we just break up? Because I've heard <laughs> that band breakups are like worse than divorces. And he's like, well, I don't know, I don't know if we really want to call it that. But I always joke that we had the most amicable, loving breakup of all of the breakups. And I mean, you know, that's the beauty of what we do. Ty and I can still get together and play music as if we played yesterday and we don't need to rehearse. It's just like in us still. I love that. So yeah, so Daryl and I just started booking gigs together and it just sort of grew and grew and grew from there. And then started our relationship. Obviously, I fell in love with him and just loved his spirit and who he is as a person, and I don't know. It was just meant to be, I think. That December of 2015, he asked me to marry him, and we were married in August of 2016, and then the cheese slipped off my cracker in October of 2016. Here we were newlyweds, and our music was exploding at that time, and we were writing, and and then like
0: you were like finally,
1: yeah. And then that happened. <laughs> and then I, I don't know. Like I just, I get like I said when all when all of that stuff just all started to bubble over for me, it was really hard to enjoy our music. It was really hard to show up in our relationship it was really hard. And you have expectations as a newlywed, like, oh, this is what our, our beautiful life is going to look like. And everything is so wonderful. And, but it was dark. It was hard.
0: and Maybe it's, would it be correct to sort of frame it as if you're going hard with work, right? And everything's so incredibly busy. And then the moment you get a rest or you go on vacation, you get sick because your body's like, okay, we can now deal with the stuff that's that we've been holding off because we couldn't deal with it because we were so busy, we had no room for it. Would you say it was similar to that where you finally had this safe, happy haven and then it allowed you to, or your mind or your body to like, okay, now that we're in this safe place, now we can deal with this.
1: That's certainly the nicest way of looking at it now. Like in hindsight, that's certainly a, a lot more acceptable way to look at it. I think at the time, I wish I had that insight to see it that way. Because again, I I sort of labeled it like, oh my God, I'm failing at this even. Like I can't even keep this together. And this is like the most beautiful thing of my life right now. And I don't have a handle on anything. I can't give it anything that I want to give it. We struggled in those early times. And like I said, Daryl has a history of, of alcoholism and drug addiction and We celebrate 15 years sobriety for him this year on June 1st. I'm so excited. I think like in those early times when I didn't understand recovery and didn't know what it looked like and didn't know what was going to be required of me in order to call it recovery, he was like, that's all he talked about. That's all he lived. So I was already in recovery. I just didn't know it. I was just with him at the time. And, and working his recovery, which it was more, even at that time, was more maintenance for him. But he always talks about it like, no, 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 it's not linear. We're all over the place. And so I already had like a bit of a guide. I was so lucky that I had that. And, but from a relationship standpoint, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. And... He didn't know what PTSD looked like. And all he saw was like this sort of shadow of his wife, of how he knew her to be. I can only imagine how scary that was for him and uncertain. It probably felt unsafe. I know that it felt, I know he was helpless to to even know what to do. And then fast forward seven or eight months, Wounded Warriors calls and says, hey, do you want to go to Alberta and do this couple's PTSD program? I am absolutely terrified of flying. So I'm like, no, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to do that, but thanks. And because all I could focus on was the flight. I couldn't focus on like, yeah, the program's probably good, but if I have to fly there, like I'm not doing that. So Daryl had kind of sat me down and said, like, we don't have a choice like we have to do this yeah,
0: listen here Mr. T yeah <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mur- Mur-
0: <laughs> Murdoch's gonna drug you and we're gonna get you to this resort
1: <laughs> pretty much yeah and like I'm not a religious person but let me tell you on that plane me and Jesus we was like this like so I got there I went I, I did take maybe one or two out of van on the way home because I it, it just was like I'm not able to cope anymore I'm not even going to Try to at this point. So, Mama's little helper did the trick on the way home. That program was like definitely transcendent for our relationship. And it was an equine therapy program. I see more of them popping up now, but it was like, Oh my, it was so validating for Daryl to sit with other spouses and hear somebody else's husband say, my wife is this, 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 and this. Daryl was like, oh my God, I'm finally seen. Somebody finally sees me. So there are other people that experience what I'm experiencing right now. That was so powerful for him. And I think it was powerful for me in that I could sit with other first responders and like finally I could talk to other people that I didn't have to do a lot of explaining They just got it. And the facilitators of that program were incredible. Four days, and it was like, holy shit, this has changed my life. It's changed my life, changed our relationship. That's kind of, I find myself here now, like I say, almost seven years later on a completely different trajectory than I ever saw myself taking almost seven years ago. I still have this amazing supportive husband by my side. It's still absolutely not a linear path for me. Even seven years later, I struggle.
0: Talk to me about, you did a cold plunge recently. (laughs) So we had a conversation about where we're at and when we were sort of planning on talking and discomfort, recognizing where our blocks and our we're limited in our beliefs and our feelings and what's next for us in our journey of growing right in this huge growth opportunity that life is and how that might be something that might help as in, and we talked about that this morning, that these things like cold plunges and cold showers and ayahuasca and ketamine, like all these things that are out there, it's not about the thing, right? I know cold plunges are a thing right now, but it's not about the thing. It's just something that shakes you out of where you're at and helps you move to the next thing. It helps move you forward, right? Because I feel like I've, I've needed things that are dramatic like that to, to knock me out of my comfort zone or that little safe space of where I'm at yeah. and then help me move to the next phase. So maybe yeah. just talk to me about that experience and that realization and where you see yourself going next.
1: I have had the same psychologist for my entire recovery. And when we had that coffee there, you know, a month ago or wherever it was when we went out last, over the previous couple of weeks, I just sort of felt this something in me that says, okay, like I love the talk therapy. I'm still doing it every two weeks. And I'm doing that part of the work. I still love to journal. And, and I I mean, I have other things that I'm focusing on now too. But as far as like my mental health support game, like that's kind of all I've been doing for a really long time. And then the two weeks before I met with you, I kind of just feeling this like, I think I need more. Like, there's just been this, like, little voice in my being that says... We're ready for
0: something. Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's shake it up a little bit. Let's... Like, something needs to be kind of knocked loose. And I'm, like, super open-minded. Like, I know you and I, we love the woo and the woo. We love all the woo-woo stuff. So... I'm super open to it. I had a really amazing virtual cranial sacral therapy appointment I think before I met you the last time. And that's that that was like, okay, I get it now. There are some things out there that I need to explore. I don't know what they look like yet, but I just need to start exploring those things. And yeah, like it is no secret that I really just like to be in a very comfortable bubble managing all the things that I can manage, and not rocking the boat too much. I love all that shit. Like, and if I can help other people feel more comfortable at the same time, I want to do that too. So I've never really needed to rock the boat. But I realize that, like I said before, like, and I know it's kind of like every friggin meme that's out there now, every poster, every motivational this, there is no growth in comfort. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> sure, there is.
0: But there's benefit in comfort.
1: Oh, yes. Like,
0: again, I think we can, the far extreme would be to say you always need to be outside your comfort zone all the time. It's oh, like, that is so harmful.
1: I agree. 100%. So it's, it's
0: finding, like, okay, I need to be in my comfort zone for a while now. Yeah. But then also recognizing when that little voice is like, okay, I think it's time.
1: Yeah. And it's that knowing, like, you know where comfort is. We'll go back there when we need to. You know, we can comfort just. comfort ahead. Yeah. We could just float in and around comfort and discomfort.
0: Or just on the edge of the comfort, the yes. comfort zone. You don't have to blow past it. Right. I'm
1: not jumping out of an airplane. Yeah. Like no.
0: There's ways to edge towards
1: yes. discomfort. Yes. Yes. I think I just realized that I did just need to know that discomfort doesn't mean unsafe. And that was sort of my realization that came out of my cold plunge experience over the weekend. So I connected with Jodi Heffern at Rooted Woodland. Please follow her on Instagram and go to her lovely sanctuary. So she is an, a nurse and again, kind of like the rest of us, always just sort of seeking something more out of her life. And so she literally found this incredible paradise in the woods, just beyond Blue Mountain. And she's been exploring a lot of the breathwork stuff and exploring the benefits of cold plunging. So she just happened to show up in my DMs and she's like, so I have this thing happening. And it was literally like, was it even days after maybe you and I had had that coffee and I'm like, oh, she's like, I have this retreat coming up. I'm like, okay, where do I send the money? I'm like, do not think. That's all I could hear in my thoughts. Don't think about it. Just do us. it. Just just do it. So I sent her the money and then I'm like, ooh, cold water <laughs> in the winter time. <laughs> and so, but I was like, no, like I'm in it now. I can't, like I'm committed. It's happening. And and I really thought, okay, this is going to be something I'm just going to explore on my own. Again, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to do it by myself. I'm just, but then I'm like, I'm not comfortable. With that. Like, I, already this experience is going to be uncomfortable enough. Maybe I could just bring a little bit of comfort with me. So I naturally reach out to Joe because Joe will do anything. And I know that about her. If I'm like, hey, want to do? She's already like, yes, when do we start? So I reached out to her. I'm like, so I signed up for this thing. Is there any chance you might want to? She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm on it. I'm on it. Let's do it. I'm off. Yeah, okay. So I'm like, okay, so that brought some of my anxiety down. But leading up to it, and this is how my I think my brain in PTSD works now, is I am all about the preparation. I need to like plan my route to drive there. I need to assess the weather. I need to know what's going to what I have to pack and I need to know the whole plan of the day. All of these things are what helps bring me back down out of that fight or flight because not knowing all these things puts me into a place of like
0: discomfort. Nope
1: uns- yeah, yes. So there was no itinerary. Jody did not provide an itinerary. I'm like, okay, I don't really like that. I just knew it started at 1030. And it went till about 330. I'm like, what, there's no end time? Like, all of this was like, I just I'm gonna just have to accept. I'm just gonna have to accept the not knowing. But I knew what I needed to take. So at least that and I, I could plan my well, actually I didn't plan my route. Joe's like, I'll map it. And I'll just tell you where to go. So I was like, okay, Anyway, we get there, it's in the forest. It is this absolutely stunning, beautiful, there's no other word, it is a sanctuary of places. And there's other people there. I think there was like maybe 10 of us there. I don't know, maybe eight of us. I don't even know, isn't that funny? But I also don't like group things. Like my husband is always like, maybe you wanna try group? No, I don't, I don't wanna try group things. I just wanna do this by myself, thanks. So again, another layer of discomfort. And they're like strangers. I don't know any of these people. And and they all have experience plunging. So that's super because I'm pretty much the only one that's like, why does anyone do this more than once? Like, I'm just still thinking like, I'm just going to, you know, maybe I'll have an epiphany here. Maybe I'll just get cold. I don't know. But I just accepted. And Jody is like, oh my gosh, just when she's talking, she's like giving you a hug. Like, it's just the most safest space that I could possibly be in. So that was lesson number one. I'm uncomfortable, but I'm safe. Here I am. I'm in the woods with all these lovely people that are all here to do the same thing. We're all, you know, the same amount of woo and woo. We're all talking about the same things. I'm like, okay, so I'm safe. So this is lesson number one, uncomfortable, but still safe. So then we go into like the whole breathing thing. And it's based on the Wim Hof method. So we, you know, we go into all this breathing thing. It's like minus a million out though. And I'm like, I don't, I'm already cold. And we're doing all the breathing things. And I'm thinking, again, I'm trying to, and I'm just trying to always make myself comfortable. There is no getting comfortable in minus 17. And it's snowing, you know, you're about to get into a bath that they literally chipped the ice out with some, pickaxe thing that morning. I'm like, Oh, my God, just be here. Just friggin be here. Just get out of your head and just be here. Fortunately, Joe's like, Okay, so do you just want to go? There's like a bit of a like, you have to wait. There's two, two baths there. So I'm like, Oh, like now? Like, do you want to go now? And she's like, let's just do it. So I'm like, Okay. I'm nervous most of the time when I am about to go into something that's uncertain. So, I've been nervous since I gave her the money. So, so she's with me beside me and and now I feel this like rush of anxiety, fight or flight, discomfort. I felt like my amygdala was the size of a friggin air balloon. I'm like, "Nope, this is I probably should just get dressed again and go to the fire." Jody is like just staring at me the whole time. She's like, "I got you."
0: And just just to add on here so people know, you have a previous connection with Jody. So just, just add on to that before you tell the rest of the story.
1: So Jody had been a nurse in Emerge at Credit Valley, and we have not seen each other in like a million years since I left the job. Right. And, and
0: you hadn't put two and two together. No,
1: right I didn't. I just thought, oh, she follows our music. And I, I didn't realize. And then when she had reached out to me that or that day that she reached out and said, oh, you know, it's been so long since we've seen each other. And I was okay. like, who the hell are you? And and then she's like, oh, from our days at Credit Valley. And I was like, oh, my God, that's who you are it just seemed like the universe was saying here you go yeah like you can't really say no i'm handing it all right to you <laughs> like it's all right here so, so fast
0: forward back to it you're in the tub yeah she's well i'm, the I'm, one I'm about
1: to get in right. yeah and she's like i got you i'm like okay i don't really know if you know what you got right now <laughs> <laughs> but um that's a big ask right now and I know it's gonna be fucking cold in there and now I'm so ahead of myself I'm not in the moment anymore and that was like the most significant lesson that I learned from the cold is that you cannot be anywhere else you can just only be there and that was super powerful I, I mean I stepped into that water and instantly was like I'm gonna die in here like i'm going to die the cold is absolutely this is my demise it's happening here while my extremities are like we don't belong here and of course she's like hey just like just descend like just be in the water and so i'm like well i'm already halfway there so i'm i'm in now but then this like rush of like it was like my nervous system just Cracked wide open, I just started sobbing, like sobbing. But it was kind of like, again, it was like Jody's talking to me here the whole time, and I'm staring at her the whole time, and she's looking right back. I mean, she's not looking away. I got you. I got you. I got you. You're safe. That sort of total outpouring. Like, I mean, Joe is right beside me. I can't even see her because I'm just not, I am just in this moment, and it's all my moment. And I just remember thinking like, I'm totally safe here. I've never been more uncomfortable in the cold, in minus 17 weather, with a woman that I haven't connected with in a long time. And we've never been this connected. Like she's seeing me on a whole next level now. And I'm I'm as vulnerable as they come here. I'm in a bathing suit in February. <laughs> and I haven't touched upon that, but vulnerability is my least favorite thing. And I am wide open here and all I can hear her saying is, you're safe. And I was like, holy fuck, I'm uncomfortable and safe again. Like, here's my another lesson where I have sought out a really uncomfortable thing here, but I'm totally safe. I can stand up and get out anytime. <laughs> but I didn't. I sat there and she just kept talking. And about a minute went by. And that's the other beautiful thing about the cold is it's just fucking cold. Like I had already created what I thought the experience was going to be like. I already thought I'm never going to be able to sit in there for two minutes and 30 seconds. There's no way. I'm going to get out. I'd already decided that. I'd already created the entire experience. And it was nothing like that for me. Was like, And that's where I realized like you don't have it all. You don't know it all. You're not going to be able to plan it all. And in the not planning, there's still safety. In the not knowing, there is still a place of comfort in the discomfort. And so I sat there for about a minute sobbing and her just continuing to just comfort me and comfort me and reassure me. And then I felt this i don't know this like uh, again the only w- word i can think of is just complete surrender where my body just said we're here
0: which is a word you don't like you know? i
1: hate that word <laughs> <laughs> i hate it so much i don't even know why i don't know if it's like the spelling i don't yeah. know what it is i just hate that word but a
0: release a letting go uh yeah a resigning
1: yeah giving over acceptance Yep. Yeah. Yeah. but then she says to me did you feel that Like in the same moment that I like just felt my body literally settle in, she's like, did you feel that? And she's like, I just felt your body let go. I'm like, oh my God, you felt that? Because I felt, I thought I was the only one feeling that. But that's what's so powerful about connection like that. Like that moment was so powerful to know that, oh my God, this person is, she is with me here. Yeah, it like, wasn't just words. Nope. She absolutely was like, did Energetically you Energetically connected with you. Yeah. yeah.
0: So powerful. Oh my Which God. Which is part of helping you to get to that release point point. Yeah. and her experience of it before I recognized it.
1: Yeah. It was so, so huge. And then I was just like, it was only then that I like looked out and, you know, we're facing this frigging mother nature's frigging paradise there that I just looked out and... I'm like, oh my God, I'm friggin' doing this. I'm like here and I'm not uncomfortable anymore and I'm totally safe. And I don't know, it was just a really weird, where my brain was like, we should be really not enjoying this. And I probably wasn't, but at the same time, there wasn't resistance anymore. There was no fear anymore. There was no fight or flight in that moment. It was just like, Serenity was just like, here I am. I'm in this moment. I don't know if I've been in a moment in a really fucking long time because I'm 10 steps ahead, like I say, all the time. But I'm like, no, nah, I'm just fucking here. And you get out, still my 17 out, but you don't, I didn't feel it. I didn't have that awareness of like, oh, I'm get, stepping out of this space into this space. It was like, no, like I am, I'm just about in this moment. I was there and now I'm here and I'm in this moment. And then I got to the sauna and that was really nice. (laughs) Yeah, but I. Again, we talked
0: about even cold showers, right? Like you, it's okay to have your warm shower, hot shower, go to cold and go back to hot again. Like that's fine. Like you don't have to step into cold, cold the whole time, step out again. You can if you want, but there's a way to do it that gets you there.
1: I think like just these sort of experiences though, just. I wasn't really anticipating the sort of constant reflection that kept coming long after the experience in the cold happened. Like, here I am like that night. I'm like, oh, I had another sort of like, that's interesting. And then I'm going to sleep that night and I'm exhausted. I've been outside all day. I'm at home in my toasty warm bed and I'm comfortable again. And something else pops into my head like, hmm. Interesting. All of these like really big reflective things that I don't think I saw before, I didn't have the awareness around before, that I think like some of these sort of alternate modalities can sometimes reveal really fascinating things about yourself that... Maybe you wouldn't get to just with talk therapy. Maybe you wouldn't get to it by just like journaling yourself. It sometimes takes these little like shakeups to just sort of like show you something else.
0: It makes sense to me that you go on a really difficult call and then you find yourself in your bed in your comfortable place and your brain is on that call. It was an impactful, intense experience and your brain ruminates on stuff like that to make sense of it. But you can do that with good things too. You can have this amazing experience and give your brain this extreme experience without you making it do anything, like forcing it. It's going to ruminate on that. But now ruminate on something that's going to help open you up and heal you, not drag you down into the depths. Yes. So maybe that's the key is like, we need that to balance out the other.
1: Even just saying like, oh, it's woo-woo stuff. Sometimes our egos prevent us from exploring. I mean, hell, our egos keep us out of like mental health professional care for years and years and years too. I don't think there's really like a cookie cutter has to be done this way. And this is what works for everybody. I absolutely don't agree with that. People find opportunities to grow and heal with lots of different things. I just think for a long time, even though I was like open to the idea I wasn't allowing myself to like go down that road just because of the uncertainty and because of like, that might be uncomfortable. <laughs> so I don't want to do that. And again, exposing that vulnerability piece, like, ooh, I hate that. And I'm really working hard on that. Like, don't talk to Daryl about that. Don't ask him about how I feel about vulnerability. <laughs>
0: so where I'd like us to end on, I remember you talking when we had coffee about people that are in emergency services still or paramedics specifically, and they're coming to you and they're like, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. And you're like, get out. Mm -hmm. Oh God. (laughs) That that was your your immediate reaction is just get the fuck out while you can. But we need paramedics. We need firefighters. We need cops. We need the military. We need these people. We need people to do these jobs. There's people that want to, even though maybe staying out is the best way to keep them safe, they're in it. And we need people to be in it. How are you reframing that in your mind? How are you, and doing this as part of it, you telling your story, but how are you reflecting on that and passing that on to people about, as opposed to just get out? What would you leave them with? Like, here's how you stay in. Not forever, like, here's how you manage it.
1: I wish I was able to tell more people to stay in. Because I think, again, I I think it's almost like that, overprotective mechanism in me that that first and foremost, I'm saying, just get the fuck out. Like, just get out. I Like, that's my way of saying, like, protect yourself, save yourself.
0: And their experience might not be your experience as well.
1: Absolutely it isn't. So I feel like the best thing we can do for our people is to have more of these conversations, to make mental health, a proactive thing. Like the way you go to the gym. Well, we don't go to the gym because we hate the gym, but we work it at home. But like the way that people go to the dentist and the way that people go to the gym and the, it just needs to be something that we just do. We just know to talk about hard things. And That's in a perfect world. I would love for that to just become the norm. I want people to talk about their therapists the way that they talk about the guy at the gym. Like, I would love that to happen, but then we go back to the aircraft carrier. Like, that may take a really long time till we see that culture and really see the impact of that shift. I think people just... I think the hardest thing for me was, like I said, sort of finding who I was not in that uniform and knowing that those were two very different people. I didn't know that. I didn't have that separation. I think that's really important for people to just know that the guy that goes and works at TD Bank every day absolutely goes home and he is a million other things on his time off but I think as first responders are so invested that it's really hard for us to make that separation. Because make no mistake, when you're at home, if something happens down the street, your neighbor is coming. If they know that you're a first responder, they're like, go to that guy's house because he'll know what to do. So it has this way of creeping into to our personal lives and to that other sort of alter identity that we carry that it does make it really difficult to separate from those two places.
0: Yeah, the coolest thing is that you can get paid to be who you are. But the downside is that you're just that way all the time. All
1: the time. <laughs> you're shut off. Right. And that's the thing. Like, And the thing with PTSD is it is like it is your, your brain on a, on a loop. It's playing just one part of, of a movie reel over and over and over again. And it and that's the worst part is it's just the same image over and over again, that same loop over and over again. Your body's obviously responding to that as if it's you're still there. And so I think that's what happens to a lot of people in their recovery, that they they're so attached to that role that they played and that person that they were or person they believe themselves to still be, that they get caught in that identity loop too. And it's the same thing. It's showing up the same way. You're just seeing yourself only in that role. You're only seeing yourself in that movie clip. This is the uniform I wear. This is the job that I do. I know this job. I'm confident that person who does that job is confident. They're self-assured. They're decisive. You're needed there. You're validated there. Like maybe you show up on the six o'clock. That is an important person to be. But the problem is, is, is if that loop in recovery is just going to continue that way, you can't get better. Like you can't. I mean, that's just not – because when you are recovering, you are not in that role. You're not wearing that uniform and you're not doing that job every day. Your job becomes recovery, and it is a job. Like if people just think, you know, I'm just going to go off work because I thought this. I'm just going to go off work, and I'm going to heal, just sitting at home. I'm going to get some sleep like normal people, and that's going to heal me. But it's not, it's one or the other. You're either at work or you're in recovery. And until your recovery reaches a place where Maybe you go back to work, or maybe you don't go back to work. But there's a place in the recovery where that happens, and at least that's my thought. And I do talk to a lot of people that I think are really hung up on the identity piece, and I get it. I know it's really hard to separate yourself. And it's really hard to know. I mean, I was a 19 year old kid when I started this job. I I don't even know who that 19 year old kid, I don't want to go back and be that person. But all I've done is just develop this identity for 25 years. So like, sure, that's going to be the hardest part. But if I'm going to like, use the analogy of the cold, and it only took me seven years to reach a place of like acceptance, surrendering, giving over. When you're in recovery, there is empowerment in those things. There's empowerment in the realization of like, okay, I'm in it. I'm going to accept it. This is just my moment. Maybe your next five minutes is shit. But in this moment, I'm just going to feel this. I'm going to friggin' be sad. I'm going to friggin' be mad. Or I'm going to be all of these things, but I'm just that now. I just think people are resistant because they don't want to let go of that role. They don't want to let go of that identity. But even in going back to that role, you can't go back the same person that left. You're going to have to go back a different person. And so you're not going to be able to get around recovery. You can stay in the shit, sure. Stay there, make it miserable for yourself and everybody else around you. Complain and kick and scream about it. Sure, do all that, but that's not going to put you back to that job healthy if that's where you want to go. It's not. So take your time to feel that way and be in the shit and and all those other things. But then know that at some point you're going to have to feel your stuff and you're going to have to move through it and recover then look at that job and then say okay I I can do it differently I can do it more resilient or I can do it from a more healed place or or maybe in my case I'm not going to do that
0: maybe we need to reframe recovery as rediscovery
1: yeah I think that's exactly what it is I'm not the same person that I was on October 19th 2016 thank god Thank God.
0: That's a huge piece too is like when you realize that you don't want to stay the same person for your whole life. So what's the point if you do that? So keep rediscovering. Keep it fresh.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely.
0: I'm really grateful that we were finally able to nail this down and yeah. we, we let it happen like we said, like when when it's the right moment, it'll be the right moment and It'll be what it needs to be.
1: I mean, I knew it was going to be like this because, like, you're one of my favorite people (laughs) of all the people that are out there. So I knew it was just going to be like a conversation. I don't even know, like, holy hell. But no, I'm grateful. And I mean, I love my time with you, whether we're, like, recording or not. It's just good. And if people listen and get something out of it, then even better. And... I'm just grateful that we've stayed in touch and that I think we've, we've supported each other and helped each other grow a lot through for this sure. stuff. And yeah, same. so, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: How do people reach out to you if they want to connect with you?
1: Oh my God, all over my Insta or my, I hate yeah, so Facebook. Give, so give your
0: two Instagram because so they can follow your music and your personal. If they yeah. Want.
1: So my music is Jenny House Duo and my Instagram is Jenny from the block. Jenny with an eye from the blog I think it is I, I, think, it, it, I think yeah, it yeah is, I think yeah. it is too but you'll see my face there it's all open but and and I encourage people to reach out cuz that's still really important to me and I do still love connecting with people and I'm happy to listen and help support people and I'm fortunate to have, like I said, met a lot of really amazing people and organizations that have made it their life's work to support first responders in our community. And I love passing out all those resources and I love connecting people. And I still want to do that. That's still super important to me. So I I do genuinely encourage people to reach out to me and and ask those questions. I am always open. Always.
0: Awesome. Great work today.
1: Thanks to me.